This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome. We're live. Dr. Carr, hi. Welcome to In Class class with Dr. Carr, with with Greg Carr. I'm Karen Hunter. We're here. I want to first thank everybody for showing up. Yes. Thank y'all. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Uh, Don't forget to uh, show us the love with the, you know, with the thumbs up and everything, all of you who are here. Um, I know we're going to be talking about Hank Aaron. Um, uh, As right before today, we came in, Larry King uh, uh, passed over. Oh, I didn't see that. That happened this morning. Yeah, yeah. I I know he had COVID. They're not saying he died from COVID, but, you know, we're still in a pandemic. A Um, whole pandemic. Yeah, and if you're part of QAnon, I know you thought it was a hoax, but you know we're heading quickly towards a half a million people dead. Um, and then yesterday we lost uh, a great ancestor and in, in Hank Aaron. But I wanted to frame because we were going to talk before inauguration about the uh, 1776 project. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you gave me homework. I want y'all to know this. This professor right here has got me going back to school. Y'all talking about y'all in the class? I'm in class too. I'm in class with myself with Professor Hunter. But I'm you know, it, for it. But, but haven't we been living through the 1776 project all along? You know, it's just you know, to me, it was like you already messed with the textbooks. You've already indoctrinated people into a way of ID of thinking about the world that you wanted them to think about it that way. But I wanted to start off with playing you a piece of audio from one night in Miami oh. um, because I think foundationally foundationally for everybody who is in here, and even if you're not from America, this is the lens through which they see us. Mm. And it's our job to make sure that we frame our own trajectory, right? So I'm going to play this. It's, it's very early on in One Night in Miami. It fe- features the uh, Jim Brown character played by Aldous Hodge. Uh, Bo Bridges is the voice that you'll hear, uh, the first voice that you'll hear. I'm going to play it. I'm starting now. What you look at who's on my porch? James Nathaniel Brown. Hello there, Mr. Carlton. Don't you hello me. Put it there, son. Come now. Have a seat with me. Can I get you something to drink? Lemonade, maybe? Oh, that's all right. Thank you. Well, suit yourself. I'm certainly having me, sir. Fetch us a couple of glasses of that lemonade, would you, sweetie? In case you change your mind. Hmm. How long have you been back on the island? I just got in last night. And you came by to say hello. How thoughtful of you, Jimmy. Well, my aunt said you were anxious to see me. I'm an early riser, so I thought I'd come right on over. Mm, early bird doesn't catch the worm. But you already know that. You caught a hell of a lot of worms this year. <laughs> Guess you can say that. No man who's run 1,860 yards in a season needs to be so humble. Actually, it was 1,863. No, that's more like it. Mm-hmm. That record is going to stand the test of time. You know, I'd happily give that record back for a win over the Packers in that last game. <laughs> that Packers win is going to be forgotten by anyone who doesn't live in Goose Bay by tomorrow. Hmm. Your record is going to be remembered forever. Well, I don't see why I can't have the record and the win next time. Right you are, son. Right you are. Jimmy. I just wanted to let you know if there's ever anything I can do for you, you should never hesitate to reach out. Well, 
that's 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 mighty kind of you. So, no, our families go way back. Been looking after one another since the first folks settled on this island. Now I wanted to make sure that I told you face to face. As long as I'm still here, that ain't ever gonna change. Well, my aunt would be very happy to hear such a kind sentiment from you, Mr. Carlton. Not everyone else on the island has been so supportive. Now nah, crabs in a barrel, I say. The hell with them all. <laughs> I, for one, think that you are a credit not only to this community, but to the entire state of Georgia. I've never been prouder to say that I live on St. Simon's Island than I am now. And I would make a point of adding a place where the great Jim Brown is from. <laughs> Here you boys go. Uh, Lemonades. Thank you, darling. Well, thank you. Mm. Sorry to bother you while you're entertaining, Grandpa, but if you could come move that bureau when, when you have a moment. Oh, sorry. I almost forgot. <laughs> you, uh, moving some furniture? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you know. Uh, you should let me help you with that. Uh, so consider it help you, Jimmy, but you know we don't allow niggas in the house. So St. Simon's Island, I did a little research and um, uh, in 1800s, there was a, it was a pathway to on the trans, transatlantic slave triangle. Uh, a ship landed in St. Simon's Island, which is uh, near Georgia or in Georgia. Uh, 1803, Igbo people took control of their slave ship and refused to submit to slavery in the United States. I just want to pause for a second. When uh, Jim Brown is on the porch, it was a giant porch on this man's property, on his home, you know, so he's having lemonade. It's a nice conversation that they're having. You know, our people have always looked out for each other. And I'm imagining, you know, since we got here, that there's a slave bondage master relationship, servant, so, you know, subordinate master relationship. Jim Brown gets up to help move the furniture. And in the most affable way, Bo Bridges, that character looks at him and smiles. You know, we don't let niggas in the house. I feel like America has been saying that to us and we just haven't been listening. You can love us singing and dancing and playing football and basketball. You can, you can let us suckle your children. <laughs> or demand that we do clean your house, wipe your ass, put out your, you know, but we don't let niggas in the house. And I think we, we kind of understood that with the insurrection, uh, January uh, 6th, that there are different ways in which people are viewed and perceived and treated as we saw per per person after person get a slap on the wrist for disorderly conduct when they actually committed treason. I just feel like, you know, Everything that we do moving forward has to be in the framework of understanding that they don't let niggas in the house. How about that? Or as Malcolm said famously in one of his speeches, if they are not going to allow people into the house, perhaps they shouldn't have a house. Perhaps it should burn down. 
common theme, you know, Martin, Martin, I, I fear I've integrated my people into a burning house. You know, I right. mean, it's just a common theme as we, as we, and, and the importance of having discussions like this through a different lens, you know, that, that scene right there, if I didn't watch anything else in one night in Miami set mm-hmm. me on my ass because it was the way in which the Bo Bridges character, I don't know who wrote those lines. Shout out to Regina King for directing it. But it was almost like matter of fact, you know, we don't let y'all in the house. What are you-, it's, it's, you know, it's very interesting, um, Karen, that we had a little bit of a conversation and you talked to the cast and we talked about it a little bit last week. And, you know, Dr. King, in the last chapter, in the last book he wrote, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? The, the name of that chapter, the title of that chapter is The World House. Mm. King's problem, the thing that got him killed, and everybody from the King family, Fred Scott King, Dexter has written about it actually in his in his memoir, Growing Up King, to Judge Joe Brown, who sat as the judge in Memphis over um, an attempt to bring new evidence to light in the James Earl Ray case. Nobody believes James Earl Ray killed Martin King. Those uh, those files are allegedly supposed to the FBI files are supposed to be unsealed. What in twenty twenty seven or something like that? I guess this new FBI Martin King documentary talks about. It. And I know that you interviewed. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, you talked. to I want to hear about that. You talk. What, what? Who? Who did you talk to, uh, Karen, during the week? Uh, don't don't make me. It was uh, it the brother? Yeah, it was the brother. It was yeah, the brother who did Eye on the Prize. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's the man. I mean, I mean, he's an amazing documentary. That's the man. That's the man. Um, but, but, did the four little girls. He's, yeah. you know, he's got a, an, uh, a lot of work. No, no, it'll come to one of us in a minute or somebody drop it in the chat as, as folks are talking. But um, the point is that Dr. King was a victim of what Black folk have always been a victim of in these settler colonies turned states or countries. And there are different labels we can use for it. By the time Martin King comes along, it's, I guess we could use the broad term internationalism. We've never been citizens of any one place, particularly in the Western hemisphere. We've always looked beyond where we were, even as we laser focused on where we are in terms of our day-to-day existence. But we've never had an allegiance to any of these settler colonies that transcended our allegiance to right and wrong and to each other. And it's very interesting. I mean, and we're going to talk about Henry Aaron. And I think probably what will end up happening is we're going to be switching back and forth and stitching all this in and out because, um, you know, thinking about Howard Bryant, our brother Howard Bryant, the great sports writer um, who has written, as far as I'm concerned, the, the best single book not authored by Henry Aaron, who has a couple of memoirs. I mean, you know, they're, they're obligatory sports memoirs that he co-authored. Really, people ghost wrote back in the, you know, 50s and 60s, Aaron, things like that. And then the, the big one um, that he is credited with authoring with, with a sports writer, uh, I Had a Hammer, because that was his nickname, Hammer. hammer. Yeah. The Hammer, you know. We know Fred Williamson was the hammer and we know Henry Aaron was the hammer. And so, hammer uh, and Hank, hammer no and Hank. <laughs> yes, I mean, Fred Williamson, uh, a legend in his own right, but he was the hammer in the movies. Henry Aaron was the hammer uh, in real life. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so, but uh, 
But before we go, we go into to to um Hank Aaron, oh, no, I, I'm gonna tie it to what we're talking about right now. No, I know. I, yeah. I just want to just put one little point on there because you know, when we go down these rabbit holes, and this is the point I think of us coming together, uh, is just dropping these gems. Michael Harriet said, you know, we'll mention something in passing that will send you on a whole ass journey, which is important, <laughs> you know, that's it's important, you know. Um, but St. Simon Island. You know, I think about the people who come from that area and, you know, that that famous 1803, I'm going to call it another up, uprising or resistance where Igbo people that they were bringing there to to sell off at an auction block decided they were going to hijack this this ship and then they committed suicide before they were put into bondage. And I think about the lines people draw and what they're willing to do to be free. And what is real freedom and what's the cost of that? You know, I am not going to be your slave. I will take my own life and we will all sail off into the great beyond before we allow that. And I'm, I'm just, you know, we're in a time right now and I don't know, you know, where people's lines are. But I think, you know, we really have to start to contemplate what is the cost of freedom and what are we willing to do to 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 have it? You know, and Jim Brown sitting there, well, you know, with that literal slap in the face coming from that place with those people. He's from those same people. That's you right. Know? That's right. I'm thinking about that. So. No, no, don't don't listen. And, 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 you know, every week we we have a rhythm and you know, don't leave me because I think we're going to I love this, the conversation. Because our it's in our conversation that we begin to weave. Together narratives that allow us to recover the memory to make the connections. And I really think, you know, in addition to everything else, but maybe everything else is secondary to this, the content, the book lists, the things we're working on, you know, to enhance things like that. It's, it's the connections. It's the remembering. That's right. You're remembering. Now, come on, you're going to make me reach over here to one of my textbooks, my man, the great Ngugi Watiango, something torn and new. This is the Kenyan brother. People talk. I mean, that's why I don't like that ADOS business. Oh, y'all don't get out of that descendants of slaves. You ain't descendants of slaves. You're descendants of human beings who came from Africa. But this brother who I had the pleasure to meet a couple of times. In fact, we brought him to campus because we had we read this book. Uh, our Philadelphia Freedom Schools read this book when it first came out in 2005. And then we assigned it to all the freshmen at Howard University's College of Arts and Sciences. And we invited Professor uh, Ngugi and he came. Uh, never forget. In fact, that's a. Uh, and Googie, um, in this book, there are four small chapters, but the, the center of this book is what you just said, Karen, remembering. He said the dismemberment of Africa took place in two ways. There was the physical separation of our ancestors from the continent. And then he says there was the uh, the the psychological, the cultural. In fact, let me just read it. Page five. The dismemberment of Africa occurred in two stages. During the first of these, the African personhood was divided into two halves, the continent and the diaspora. African slaves, the central commodity in the mercantile phase of capitalism, formed the basis of the sugar, cotton, and tobacco plantations in the Caribbean and American mainlands. If we accept that that slave trade and plantation slavery provided the primary accumulation of capital that made European uh, industrial revolution possible, we cannot escape the irony that the very needs of that industrial revolution, this is what you just said about what they want from us, markets for finished goods, sources of raw materials and strategic requirements in the defense of trade routes 
led inexorably to the second stage of the dismemberment of the continent. Then he goes into the Berlin Conference. Then he goes for, but he says the second stage is the dismemberment of our memory, the dismemberment of our connection. And so he spends the rest of this book in one way or the other talking about the word you just evoked. Remembering. How do we remember? So it isn't just the act of individuals recalling things. How do we reconnect? How do we how do we reforge a bond that was not a bond? Because we were taken from all over this continent, which is why the title of his book is something torn and new. Because the new thing is going to be us making something out of the remembering. So I just wanted to mention that you, you said remembering, but the Jim Brown, the clip from uh, Brother Hodge and, and, and Bridges, and the fact that you put Jim Brown on the sea islands of Georgia and South Carolina and connect him to that act of resistance, the Ebo resistance, 1803 and that is a well well evoked um well evoked marker for Igbo identity in that region as we have taken it into the larger narrative of black memory in the so-called modern world the idea that the Igbo and in some places you know there's Igbo landing I mean there's a number of but the Igbo chose returning to to eternity going literally into the water and some tellings walking back into the water virginia hamilton's children were the people who thought they could fly the idea that we can return to africa we can return to identity my, my dear brother daniel black down at um clark atlanta university in his novel the coming which i think i have around here because actually no i don't know what i did with the coming it's around here somewhere anyway who talks about this idea of return that return is a spiritual return. We'll give our bodies up. We'll shed these bodies and go back. Uh, as the old spiritual goes, as it echoes into that, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my God and be free. That is very much in the spirit of resistance. And so Jim Brown is raised in that community. And, you know, it's interesting because we're going to hear a lot about Henry Aaron over the next few days and, it, and, and, and a great deal of it in uh white facing media and white media commercial news entertainment media is going to be from the jeff bridges side this is what hank did for us and thinking about the curriculum framework that we wrote for the philadelphia mandatory african-american history class and listen i'll understand something about curriculum it's only as good as it is used in a classroom and of course, as we said, when we talked about that some time ago, when we wrote that curriculum, the first thing we did was sit down and go back through all the curricula that had been written in the 40 years before we sat down, because it's a terrible thing when we try to act like we've done something new, when in fact, there's very little new in the world, particularly, you know, in, 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 a, in a situation like this. And we're going to talk about 1776 and, and the curriculum wars, because that's really what that was about. You know, everything in the media now, oh, it's 1776, they canceled it, they took it off the website. It ain't off the website. Go to, if y'all want to get a copy, go to the College of the Ozarks website, because one of the guys on the commission is the president of the College of the Ozarks, and they put it over there for safekeeping. But at any rate, then they say, well, historians are coming in, and the historians are saying that it's not historically accurate. Y'all looking at the wrong thing. Why y'all going for that red cape in this in this fight with this bull 
you, you see, you're going for the wrong thing. It wasn't written for historians, fools. This is a this is a renewal of an ideological declaration of independence and a declaration of war. And it's the same blueprint that has been used, as you said, Karen, in, in the public schools since the beginning of this enterprise, which, you know, is entirely founded as a criminal enterprise when it comes to our people. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for historical accuracy, you've missed the entire point. They're not talking to you. <laughs> and in fact, to quote another lighthearted movie, The Nutty Professor, remember when they sitting at the buffet, standing at the buffet and uh, Sherman's mother and father are there and the mother is talking and the father looks at her and says, you think I'll be listening to you? I don't be listening to you. So all you people up in arms about the 1776 project and think it's gone, they're not listening to you. You think they'd be listening to you. They're not listening to you. We'll get into that in a minute. But the Sea Islands that Jim Brown come from, there's a son, in fact, the first major superstar in baseball to come out of Henry Aaron's hometown, who precedes Henry Aaron, who Henry Aaron knew, who Henry Aaron for one brief moment in time shared a major league team with. And that's, of course, Leroy Satchel Page. So as we, and I'm going to try to sit islands and we're going to keep, keep going. As we think about Henry Aaron today, Henry Lewis Aaron, the hammer, we, I think we're probably going to approach this with a nod toward the thing folk will see everywhere else so we can conserve our time here for the connections. Meaning, you know, get, I had a hammer, the Henry Aaron memoir, so to speak. Get the great Howard Bryant's book. The title of the book almost makes me well up because, Karen, in a second, I'm going to ask you about your memories of Henry Aaron because I have memories of Henry Aaron. I think we all do of a certain age, but I love Howard's title. And fortunately, last night, Roland Martin brought together uh, brought together uh, Brother Bryant, Howard Bryant, Bob Kendrick, who is the um, is the uh, director of the Negro League Museum, 18th and Vine, as I call it, the shrine at 18th and Vine in Kansas City, and the great Claire Smith. Hmm. a sister who a uh, great journalist and the four of us with Roland talked about the life of Henry Aaron. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be in this quartet, but I promise you, you know, I'm gonna make a few comments, but I'm sitting back and listening to y'all because y'all have a different generation. And I told Howard, I told him on the air right there, I say, man, the title of your book, that about sums it up. The name of uh, Howard Bryant's Henry Aaron biography is The Last Hero. And I don't know that that really overstates it in terms of the intersection of sports. I mean, Jim Brown is still here as Dave Zirin wrote the memoir of Jim Brown. Jim Brown's got his own books. And then Dave Zirin came along and wrote a book called a couple of years ago called Last Man Standing. And maybe the Jim Brown is there. And in fact, I, so what we're going to do today is talk about Henry Aaron. But we're going to talk, as John Henry Clark used to say, around the subject to frame and to get to the subject. In fact, uh, we're going to mention this book. This is Dusty Baker's little memoir. I love Dusty Baker. Johnny B. Baker out of California. Kiss the Sky. He was a uh, Jimmy Hen is a Jimi Hendrix fan who was mentored, not, not mentored, jagnad, apprenticed by Henry Aaron. When he was a young cat coming out of California and they drafted him and he was introduced to Henry Aaron because the Braves were trying to coax him not to go to college to sign him. And he writes about what that meant. In fact, Dusty Baker is one of the few people on the planet Remember that curriculum I was talking about, uh, that Philadelphia curriculum? We set up six questions that we say, if, you want, if you're going to study Africana from an Africana lens, these six questions, you have to ask these six questions. 
The first question is, who are Africans to other people? That's just about everything in the school curriculum. I don't care if it's 1776 project or 1619 project. Who are we to other people? We, we have to ask that question first because that's what we've all been socialized to look for. Now, and then, then that lets us also separate that question from the real question we want to ask. The thing we've been doing Saturday after Saturday, the work we all have to do. And that is the question of who African people are to each other. So when Johnny Baker, Johnny B. Baker, you know, to white major league baseball, to many people who don't, they call him Dusty, right? To Henry Aaron, Dusty Baker say, and Harold Bryant writes this in The Last Hero, one of the few people who Henry Aaron would let call, call him Hank. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry, we close, we close. We're going to get there. Was Johnny B. Baker. Why? Because Dusty Baker tells the story in Kiss the Sky about how when his when, when he was going to think about signing with the Braves, he's a teenager now, 16 years old, 17 years old. He comes in to uh, a workout with the, with, the, with, the, with the Braves. And his mother, Dusty Baker's mother, says to Henry Aaron, take care of my son. Dusty Baker writes in this book. In fact, I ought to find the page if I can find it quick. Because I, I mean, I love, I love it when we can just tell the story the way it, 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 it is. He says, "Ah, here we go." He said, uh, "My mom and I flew down to Los Angeles, and that was the first time I had the privilege to meet Hank Aaron. He prefers Henry. We're getting there. We're getting there. Who are Africans? Other people." We're Africans to each other. He prefers Henry, but I always call him Hammer, as in Hammer and Hank, or sometimes just Ham for short. My mother wasn't a big baseball fan, but she knew who Hank Aaron was. Everybody knew who Willie Mays and Hank Aaron were. Willie Mays still walks to earth. We'll get to him, too. The previous Wednesday back in Atlanta, Hammer hit his 30th home run of the season in a game against the Giants, meaning that for 10 of the previous 11 seasons, he had hit 30 or more homers. By the way, Henry Aaron, number three on the all-time hit list in Major League Baseball. If you take the 755 home runs that Henry Aaron hit in what was white Major League Baseball, become now what we call Major League Baseball, I'm sorry, add five more if you count his Negro League record, which they won't do. We'll get to that too. If you take all 755 they count out of the record, out of his hits, the man still got over 3,000 hits. This is Henry Aaron. All right, anyway. Mean that for 10 of the previous 11 seasons, he'd hit 30 more homers. He had great wrists and a beautiful swing, and he was Mr. Consistency. My mama knew he was a great player, and she saw that he was also a good man, a sensitive and intelligent man, mentally strong. He reminded me somewhere between of somewhere between my dad and my uncles. So she asked Hank to look out for me, and, she, and he said he would to this day. He has fulfilled his promise. Shout out and sympathy to all of the Aaron clan his wife, Billy, his children, grandchildren, and shout out to all the people who he was a father and grandfather to, men like Dusty Baker, for example. We don't get to all that, but I'm but I said that at this moment because Dusty Baker, one of the few people close to him who would call him Hank. Henry Aaron's name is Henry. Sports writers. Henry Aaron's name is Henry. He, not gonna, he wasn't going to correct you because understand that we walk through a world, we live in a world, again, We all this is connected. We're making connections. We live in a world, Karen, that you just evoked. 
the world where we have a social structure face and we have a governance structure face. We have a face we show people. Hey, yeah, hey, y'all doing that? Yes, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, very dignified. You know, Southerners are. Yeah, it's very nice. And then we got the face at home, Henry. Or better yet, for all of us, Mr. Aaron. Like, you know, can you imagine walking up to this brother? Hank, yeah, you can if you black in America, because that's how they talk. Hell, that's what they call your foremothers, my own mother working in houses. Oh, you don't call her by her first name. And I'm balling up my little 13 year old fist saying, maybe I should just like get rid of all the rest of your remaining baby teeth and the grown ones that came in. You don't call my mama by her first name. But anyway, yes, you do. Why? Because that's who she is to you. But that's not who she is to me. And so anyway, I set out to say that I haven't left the island yet. Why? Because Henry Aaron is the best known player to come. Baseball player, come out of Mobile, Alabama. Oh, but he's not the first, probably maybe not even the greatest. The first and the greatest, probably Leroy Satchel Page. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. Wrong one. Wrong one. Leroy Satchel Page. I got a couple of Satchel Page pieces in here. This is one of the early, he wrote his own too. I guess I'll pitch forever. But I couldn't put my hands on that. I think that's probably in storage. Don't look back. Mark Robowski. I had a, I had one. I had a working copy of that around here. Satchel Page in the Shadows of Baseball. I bring it up because a reason I have Buck O'Neill here. And there's a whole great story about the nickname that Satchel Page gave Buck O'Neill. But I, I, I'll resist talking about that. He called him Nancy. So it's a very interesting story behind that. But anyway, chapter six of Buck O'Neill's bi biography. Seems like I've been here before. There's a famous story that Buck O'Neill used to always tell. And in this chapter, he talks about, he starts with everybody knows Satchel Page, or whether everybody, or rather, everybody knows Satchel Page, or rather, everybody knows who he was, but few of us actually knew him. And I count myself one of the lucky ones. He said, let me start out with a story that shows part of who Satchel was that nobody ever hears about. One time we wanted to roll with the Monarchs, Kansas City Monarchs. And by the way, we're going to get into Henry Aaron's year in the Negro Leagues. One time we were on the road with the Monarchs in Charleston, South Carolina. Here we go. Here we go. When we got to Charleston, the hotel rooms weren't ready yet. So he said, Nancy, you remember why he called me that, right? Nancy, come on with me. We're going to take a little trip. Well, we went on over to an area near the harbor called Drum Island. Jim Brown from a different island, but together they're known as the Sea Islands. That's what those evil people were off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. We're going to take a little trip. He says that was where they had auctioned off the slaves. And there was a big tree with a plaque on it. Hey, y'all, while I'm reading this, I want y'all to understand how the ancestors work. Karen didn't tell me what she was going to play and why she was going to play it. Don't play with the ancestors. They are always here. Let me continue. There was That was where they had auctioned off the slaves. And there was a big tree with a plaque on it marking the site of the old slave market. Satchel and I stood there, silent as could be, for about 10 minutes, not saying anything, but thinking a whole bunch of things. Finally, Satchel broke the silence. You know what, Nancy? He said. What's that, Satchel? Seems like I've been here before. Me too, Satchel. That was Robert Leroy Page, a little bit deeper than most people thought. Such a page was the first great baseball player to come out of Mobile, Alabama. He was not the last. Henry Lewis Aaron, the hammer, whose father 
played Negro, local Negro baseball in Mobile. They had a team called the Mobile Dodgers who not only saw Satchel Page up close, saw the white players when they would come through and play sometime Negro League. In fact, Hank Aaron's daddy, Henry Aaron's daddy said, I saw uh, Babe Ruth hit a home run onto the railroad tracks. I was up in a tree in Mobile. Yeah, right. Interestingly enough, remember they created a candy bar for Babe Ruth called Baby Ruth. And they had another candy bar that had been created around the same time that when I was coming along and you were coming along, we thought they had named this one for the man who was getting ready to break Ruth's record. Henry Aaron. Remember Oh Henry Candy Bar? Yes. Oh Henry. They remember they had that commercial. Yes. <laughs> Them home runs. Oh Henry. Some of y'all know about that Oh Henry Candy Bar. But the point is that Henry Aaron's father played in the Negro Leagues. At local. He wasn't a Negro League player. But Satchel Page was the first great one. And I thought about that because... In 1971, they inducted Satchel Paige into the uh, into the white Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, I, I don't call it the Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, again, because you got to really think about that. You know, why are we calling it the white, I mean, the Hall of Fame now? Oh, yes, integrated. You know, we're going to come together. But it's interesting. This was August the 9th. That's my brother's birthday. 1971. I guess my brother's been three years old today that he got. Satchel Page said this in his acceptance speech as he got his plaque at Cooperstown. Satchel Page, who at age 62, at least as close as you could tell, because nobody really know what year he was born, and he wasn't going to really tell nobody as such. But uh, at the age of 62, according to Henry Aaron, was the age that Satchel Page was brought and signed by the Atlanta Braves to join their team as a kind of coach, uh, player coach, but really a coach. So that he, so the Braves did this so that Page could get the extra few months on to his time of service on a, on a major league uh, team to qualify for a major league pension. Because by the time they brought him in, in his late forties with Cleveland Indians and stuff like that, you know, he pitched, he was actually very effective, but he was an old man then, but they, they released him a few months short of the time it would take for him to qualify for a major league pension. Shout out Jeff Bridges character. The whole point is that, you know, we got the little juice from him. We, we let you in. Yeah. After I was gone, if you let me in when I was 22, you would be calling it the Satchel Page Award. Or I'm sorry, the Leroy Page Award, not the Cy Young Award, because I was the greatest person to ever throw a ball in the United States of America in a game called baseball. But then they let him in the, uh, the Hall of Fame, the first Negro Leaguer they let in based on the Negro League record. What did Satchel Page say that day in his induction? Baseball has turned Satchel. This is what Satchel Page said. Baseball has turned Satchel Page from a second-class citizen to a second-class immortal. Wow. Who are we to other people? Who are we to each other? You know niggas ain't allowed in the house. We're going to let this nigga in the house. And the nigga came in the house and said, you turned me from a second-class citizen to a second-class immortal. Don't you ever think that bringing me into your house washes you of your sins wash you don't ever think you know major league baseball they're going to incorporate the uh, records of the negro leagues because they're going to show no, you can't because those records are incomplete 
And watch this. They say they're going to cut off including any records after, I'm sorry, after 1948, because Robinson comes in from the Kansas City Monarchs. He was a Negro Leaguer in 1947. Uh, well, before that, then, he, you know, he's playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. He comes, he joins the Dodgers Major League roster in 47 after playing in Montreal the year before, comes in. So they're going to cut off the Major League roster, uh, cut off the Negro League records after 48 because they can't uh, vouch for the quality. Yeah, Henry Aaron played one year for the Indianapolis Clowns. Buck writes about that too, Mr. O'Neill, Buck O'Neill. Henry Aaron played for the Indianapolis Clowns, and of course, everybody had to have a, 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 a nickname. So his nickname was Pork Chop, Henry Pork Chop Aaron, shortstop. And Buck O'Neill talks about talking to the coach of the uh, the coaches, and somebody asked him, "Hey man, who is this kid, uh, Aaron?" He said, "You'll see." Aaron that day. Destroyed the pitching as usual. And afterwards, uh, O'Neill says he goes to dinner with the other coach. And the coach said, well, damn, he was as good as you said, but thank God we won't be having to face him many more times. And O'Neill said, what you talking about? He said, oh, they're going to sign him. And shortly thereafter, the Milwaukee Braves come calling. And the Hammer joins white Major League Baseball. But I'm, I, I'm bringing all that up to say that you got Satchel Page, Leroy Satchel Page coming out of Mobile. You got the Hammer, Henry Aaron coming out of Mobile, and his brother Tommy, Tommy Aaron coming out of Mobile. And I'm gonna ask you in a minute now about this memory, Karen, so we can kind of begin to tie a lot of this stuff together. And then you got a cat who is not from Mobile. Actually, uh, let me see. There's another brother who was born right outside of Mobile who idolized Henry Aaron, who's still alive. I actually pulled his out of That's Billy Williams. Billy Williams still around, played for the clubs. He's a Hall of Famer as well. He came from a little town right outside of uh, Whistler, Whistler, uh, Whistler, Alabama, right outside of Mobile. But the other cat, well, there are a couple of others, really. Uh, Willie McCovey, who played with uh, the brother I'm about to name. This brother wasn't from Mobile, but he was from Alabama, and he too played with the Negro League. He played with the Birmingham Black Barons. His father was a baseball player. He still walks the earth. His name, of course, is Willie Howard Mays. And what did the Negro Leagues do with their dying gasp? Although they would limp along for another decade plus after Robinson. With their dying gasp, they spat forth the two Negroes that rewrote them white record books. Henry Lewis Aaron out of Mobile, Willie Howard Mays out of Birmingham. Those are Negro leakers. And as Henry Aaron said his entire life, he said, the Negro Leagues, people would ask him, and you know, Aaron, very cool. Do you, is there are people who say the Negro Leagues were better than the white major leagues. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, that's probably true. You know, you know how black folk have to gauge how much somebody can take. <laughs> you understand? That's why I like uh, I like one of the interviews that, uh, that Henry Aaron did with Craig Melvin. Craig Melvin asked him, you know, your, your colleague in the, in the media, mass media, of course, Craig Melvin, usually NBC, MSNBC. Craig Melvin, like most of us be talking to Henry Aaron, just lit up like a Christmas tree. Craig Melvin say, man, you know, there are people who say you're the greatest baseball player to ever, ever played." He said, uh, what would you say to that? Aaron leaned back. He said, well, I'm with you. And then <laughs> laughing. I mean, and, and you just you feel the joy, the effervescence. But these are the Negro League players that that did this kind of thing. But I'm, I want to pause here, Karen. I want to ask you because you tweeted something and it just it just hit me in my heart. What's your memory of, of Henry Aaron? 
very little. I mean, I was six, seven. My grandmother would come and I would spend summers down there and then she would come up and stay with us sometimes during the wintertime. And a little little tiny woman named Julia, ah, my, my heart. She had a little transistor radio, cream color. I never forget it. Had one little earbud, one of them little funny looking earbuds, you know, that you just put in that one ear and I would get in a bed with her and we would share that little earbud and she'd listen to uh, Hank Aaron and tell me about him. And uh, he's the first baseball player I ever knew because she loved him. The, the Atlanta Braves, you know, being a Georgia woman. Um, and that's the only person I ever knew was Hank Aaron until I got older, you know, but he was baseball for me, you know. And, you know, I just think about the the relationship that we have with the people that we love and what we get to engage with and what we get and then ironically end up becoming a sports writer for the New York Daily News. <laughs> But you think about, you know, those early memories and it wasn't about the baseball, it was about the shared experience with my grandmother. But, you know, this, oh, you know, this little, I mean, she was, I, I was saying to somebody, you know, I wish that more grandparents had, you know, that the gray hair and the fluffy skin and the, mm. <laughs> the warm bosoms, you know, mm. you know, because that, that, that kind of stuff is missing and it ties us to things and it's the wisdom of it. And it's, you know, like she was the smartest, greatest, most wonderful person I ever knew in my entire life uh, who loved me uh, beyond. Like I knew that I was loved, you, you know, you got parental love, but when you had a good grandparent, oh. you know, there's nothing like it. So um, that, that was my, foray into baseball through my grandmother's little tiny transistor radio. Wow. When did you when did you first hear about Hank Aaron? It's the same and different. It's exactly what you said. It it is striking. Again, y'all, the ancestors don't make it was radio. And you know, being down there in the South, it was radio. It wasn't television. At that time, NBC had something called a game of the week. So it was one game, two teams. <laughs> but we listened on the radio. And as you also know, and those of you who had this experience, and there's so many, this is the thing I'm loving about Henry Aaron. He made transition, and all these people are telling stories that are the same story you just told. It's not even about Henry Aaron. It's about my grandmother. It's about my grandfather. My mother's play, as we used to I'd say, play, play granddaddy, the man who lived across the street when we moved in, moved in a little duplex in Nashville, and I was too small to remember but I would cut grass over there with him. We talked about baseball before. His man was Bob Gibson, as we talked about Gibson. And by the way, I was looking, because again, John Clark said you talk around the story to get to the story. This is the book that Bob Gibson wrote with Reggie Jackson called 60 Feet, Six Inches, a Hall of Fame pitcher and a Hall of Fame hitter to talk about how the game is played. And in this book, it's very interesting. I won't, I won't, I'll never be able to find it right now. Oh, wait, Towering Figures. Actually, I might actually be able to find it very quickly. I'll see. If, uh, yeah, here we go. He said, uh, Bob Gibson, whose reputation, if y'all go back and look at the conversation that we had about Bob Gibson, you'll tell you about the history of Bob because he just made transition a few months ago, right? Out of Omaha, Nebraska, hometown of Malcolm X and Bob Gibson. But at any rate, Bob Gibson tells Reggie Jackson, because, you know, Gibson's reputation was he ain't scared of no hitter. Bob Gibson tell Reggie Jackson, I have to say that I was never quite that enthused about seeing Hank Aaron. In fact, there was probably no pitcher in the, and no player in the National League who enthused me less. That man did not miss a fastball. 
That's what that, that, that's like the highest compliment a cat like Bob Gibson would give to any batter because he thought I dominate uh, this man. I did not like this. This man did not miss a fastball. And Gibson's best pitch was his fastball. Some people say his slider. This is what Reggie Jackson said out of Cheltenham, uh, Pennsylvania. Well, you say Cheltenham, but you might as well say the Philly suburbs. Reggie Jackson say in Oakland, I wore number nine. But when I came over to the Yankees, that number was already taken by Craig Nettles. So I chose 44 because of my admiration for Willie McCovey, Mobile, and Hank Aaron, Mobile. I was also aware that Jim Brown and Ernie Davis had worn 44 at Syracuse. Ancestors, come on now. Great number. Why does Jim Brown wear 44? You should have him on the show sometime and ask him, Karen. Let's, let, let, let me stitch this back to Syracuse because as you were talking about Jim Brown on that porch, Jim Brown, the first great running back out of, out of Syracuse. Following him, Ernie Davis, the Express, who dies young. Then there is something known as the Syracuse 8. The Syracuse 8, of course, those of you who know this history, know this. People may have just heard this. Go look up the Syracuse 8. The Syracuse 8, 1968, that the Kings assassinated by the Kennedys assassinated. These, these are eight football players who say, we got to change things around here. So they decide, y'all got us up here. Y'all want us to run. Y'all want us to be quiet. Jim Brown. Jim Brown, the first great one. And remember, this white boy represented by uh, Bridges is saying, quoting how many yards he ran, and Brown corrects him. Let's be very clear. One of the reasons why Jim Brown is considered the greatest running back to ever run in the NFL is when uh, Art, whatever his name is, y'all did look it up, Art Modell, who was the owner of Cleveland Browns, threatened him with, hey, man, you out here shooting movies. That's a side job. You need to come on. Your job is here. Jim Brown quit. He only played nine years in the National Football League. I'm not com I'm not a slave. In fact, I love this. I remember reading this memoir. Jim Brown would come to the locker room seek in a suit and had a briefcase. Because, you know, Jim Brown, I, I resist the urge. There's a whole book on black power in Cleveland. In fact, we mentioned it last week. We have to talk about that another time, how they pulled this thing together. The sports writers, white sports writers, Jim, why you come to the locker room like this when you play football? He said, this is my job. He says, I come to work dressed to do my job. I'll switch out this. And he said, why you come dressed like that? In other words, Jim Brown, like Roberto Clemente, who he would not let those Pittsburgh uh, writers call him Bobby. My name is Roberto. Like, yeah, that's why I love, man, I should have wore, you know, I wore that shirt before. My shirt with Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, and Henry Aaron. And I asked the students, now find the black and find the Latino. And most of them don't know enough baseball to be able to pick anybody out. And of course, Roberto Clemente, who spoke very little English when he came, you know, the, the, the white sports writers in Pittsburgh called him sullen. Called him, you know, you're not being, you know, you want you don't want to talk to us. Hey, 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 my name is Roberto. Y'all not calling me Bobby. Jim Brown, that kind of dignity. We're going to talk about dignity in a minute, too. But this comes with a type of, you're not going to make me into what you want me to be. But Brown made it through Syracuse, playing lacrosse, playing football, All-American. Ernie Davis comes after him. And then the Syracuse 8, because Syracuse loves Negroes as long as they run the ball. they like every other white plantation college. You know, Alabama sent a damn illiterate football coach to the United States Senate because he had been a coach at Auburn University. You know, we love you Negroes. As long as, but the Syracuse 8 said we had to stand up to this. And they came up with a list of demands. We want a black, at least a black assistant coach. We want better take, you want you to take care of everybody on the team, better health care, better training care. Somebody get injured, you know, treat they had a whole list. And there were white players who were with them. But they eventually get put off the football team. 
Here come the alumni talking about, oh, hell no, they got to go. Here come some of their teammates, white teammates said, we don't want to play. If they come back, because they said, we're going to boycott if we don't get this. Ultimately, now, of course, a million years later, they bring on Syracuse, back, play eight back, they honor them. They talk, yeah, that's what white institutions always do. They punch you dead in your face. And like Satchel Page said, yeah, I went from first, first second class citizen to second class eternal, second class immortal, second class honoree. You ain't doing us no favors making us making us footnotes in your history so at any rate i mentioned that because as i said when you see some players with the numbers they wear those players are paying homage to the governance structure who we are to each other i remember in philadelphia for example when alan iverson would come after the games to press conferences and he would have on jerseys throwback jerseys in tribute to the people he honored like a Bill Russell jersey or something, and the Philadelphia sports writers and white fans would go crazy. Dale's wrong with him. He plays for the Sixers. Yeah, no. See, AI's problem, your problem with AI is he going to get his hair braided over there on, uh, he going to get his hair done up there on Germantown Avenue in the black community, North Philly. He going to have his folks with him. He going to sag. He going to have tattoos, and he going to come to the press conference honoring Jim Brown. He may have a football jersey on there. And y'all think that these cats is just doing this for fashion. Some of them now really are. But if you go back to the earlier days, this was all about respect. And y'all think that he repping Philly and you rep Philly. So therefore he should rep it the way you rep it. Now he repping being black. Please understand that you can't even see what he's doing. Cause those are two separate categories. Who Africans are to other people, who Africans are to each other. So um, Henry Aaron, a man who would inspire Reginald Martinez Jackson out of Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, to put on that 44 when he comes to the Yankees. A man who would get the respect of his fellow Hall of Famer, White Hall of Famer, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer, Bob Gibson, and, and everybody else. A man who, because of your grandmother, was the only man you knew with baseball, but really more importantly is you laying up there next to your grandmother in the bed with that. And I remember that little white cord with the little earbud, the thing that stick and it's like, you put it there and oh my God. And for y'all to be sharing that, that is the memory that puts us together. And for me, after cutting grass in Mr. James yard, we sitting on the porch. He is a Cardinals fan because of Bob Gibson. We could also in Nashville, cause remember the Atlanta Braves are the first major league franchise south in the south in the deep south you know you say well baltimore orioles is south of the mason dixon line but you know that's south it is but it ain't south south atlanta braves in fact henry Aaron hit a home run in the first all-star game played in atlanta for the atlanta braves he was representing the atlanta braves on the all-star team he hit a home run as the first all-star game played in the south aaron in nashville we knew because we could get the Atlanta station at night. Yeah, I know. Because you and your grandma were listening to that little transistor, listen to AM station. FM is like, we remember when FM, oh, what is that? It's all clear. No, you had to wait at nighttime to get a station. And in Nashville, we could hear Atlanta. And we could hear Cincinnati. Cincinnati has 700, WLW, I think it's name. It's a clear channel station. Nashville is well known because of its clear channel station. It's called WSM. We serve millions. We talked about D4 Bailey and the Grand Ole Opry. That's why everybody knew about the Grand Ole Opry out of Nashville, because they had what they call a clear channel station. You know this better than I do, Karen. You could explain it much better. That frequency, in other words, isn't cobbled with other stations, other places. You can hear that all over. And Atlanta had a broadcast station that broadcast the Braves game. So as a child, I grew up with, Henry Aaron, 
Ralph Gar, who's a graduate of, uh, well, alum, yeah, graduate of Gramlin State University, friends with Dusty Baker, grew up with Baker and them, but differently. Because by then, the Braves gotten rid of Baker. He was playing for the LA Dodgers. And the reason we knew Dusty Baker, who we did not like at that time, was because Baker would come and the Dodgers were playing, this is like the mid to late 70s, into the early 80s. They were playing the Cincinnati Reds. Our team was the Cincinnati Reds because we could hear them on the radio. And more importantly for us, Cincinnati Reds had Joe Morgan, Dan Dreesen, George Foster, Mario Soto, Dave Concepcion, Cesar Geronimo, Ken Griffey, Sr. They had all the black players. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Dusty Baker and them come to town. We like Dusty Baker as an individual, but we didn't want the Dodgers to win. Little did we know that that Johnny B. Dusty Baker coming to play the Reds versus the Reds versus the Dodgers, those great wars in 1976, 77, 78, and Tom sort just made transition in his 90s, the former coach of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Dodgers. We didn't know that Baker had been raised in baseball by the man we worshipped in Atlanta, the hammer, Henry Aaron. And so as your memories are with your grandmother, in the bed, sharing that one little earbud transistor. And there's a bunch of people in here right now. I know exactly that radio you're talking about because we had the same thing. My memory is me and Mr. James sitting on that porch. And also, I, you know, and I'll say this and keep going because there's a lot of Henry Aaron. We'll, we'll co-mingle as we're having these conversations. Uh, 1974. Remember, Henry Aaron nears the home run record of Babe Ruth, George Herman Ruth. Uh, from Baltimore. He nears that record at the end of 1973. He's getting hate mail all over the place. By, by most accounts, over 900,000 pieces, somewhere between 930, 940,000 pieces, according to most historians, but you never know for sure. Aaron's daughter, Aaron's daughter, Gail, was a student at Fisk University down the street from me up Jefferson Street in North Nashville from across the street from Meharry Medical College and up the street from Tennessee State where I went to undergrad but that was not when I started undergraduate school at, in Tennessee State no this was 1973 and I was all of eight years old so I didn't know that while we were cheering for Henry Aaron, say, break that record and don't let nobody fool none of y'all who are not old enough to remember this, it was absolutely racial. Oh, it was racial? Break the back of Babe Ruth. Break his whole back. By the way, parenthetically, Babe Ruth was not a uh, kind of bloodless color. All human beings have, have color, but some people look like a little bit like they don't have a lot of color, right? He wasn't a vanilla white. He was more toward a kind of beige, reddish brown white. As a result, the racists in Major League Baseball, and I'm talking about the Georgia Peach, Ty Cobb, Autumn Cats, when the Yankees would play like the Detroit Tigers, they would call Babe Ruth the N-word. They swore, in other words, they said, you a nigga, you black. No, nobody, in other words, that, that was the insult they used on Babe Ruth. When he was playing major league baseball we didn't know that as kids all we know is babe ruth is your hero babe ruth mickey Mantle, all you white people and here comes henry aaron in fact that was the banner they had move over babe here comes henry and they had that picture of babe ruth and then you had the hammer after you hit another home run in the front of it in color it's like move over babe 
here comes Henry to end the 1963-1973 season. I'm eight years old. Henry Aaron hits number seven, 14, 7, 13. We realize that, and then 7, 14, Gail, who I did not know, don't know, she's a teenager at Fisk. Who, who Henry Aaron raised money for, scholarships for, he and his wife, Billy. Let's be very clear. That's a whole nother story. We didn't get into that. She's getting death threats. Then a rumor starts that she's going to be kidnapped. They're going to kidnap Gail, hold her hostage and kill her because Henry Aaron is not allowed to break this nigga's record. Wow. Really? Imagine... And here Aaron writes about this. He talks about this. He talks about, y'all can go, y'all ain't got to read a book. Go look at all the interviews that are out there on here. Here Aaron would say, you know, I had no joy. I had no joy about, you know, this, this uh, home run record. I was under such stress. He had a bodyguard. He was living in Atlanta. Maynard Jackson, the mayor of Atlanta, provided him with extra security. He had a body man, a black dude who stayed with him the whole time. So, He's getting close to the record, but he doesn't break the record until the following April, spring, end of the season. Now we're in 1974. Al Downing, I think it was, the Dodgers. Y'all, Some of y'all really know this off the top of your head again. He ties the record. He's tied the record. Then he breaks the record. My God. His mother and father were there at the game in Atlanta. Y'all can look this up. You can read it anywhere. If you really want to have fun, go get those. Some of y'all got them in your house. Some of you want to get them on Google Books. Wherever. And I got copies of just I, just about all the Ebony magazines. I mean, I you know, and Henry Aaron was on the cover. Ebony and Jet, my God, so many times. A lot of us, you knew Henry Aaron because you see him, right? Henry Aaron tells a story of how his mother and father, if y'all ever watched it, and if you've seen it a million times, remember he hits the home run. He's circling the bases. The two white boys show up out of nowhere. Ain't no damn security to pat him on the back. He shake. He ain't not even. He turn. He rounds third. He gets the home plate. The first person, his teammates are out there. Saying, the first person to jump up in his arms is his mother. Henry Aaron's mother, Estella. You see her just get up on his shoulder. Henry Aaron had received all kind of letters and death threats and was told, nigga, if you break that record, you will never cross home plate. We're going to shoot you before you cross home plate. So they had swept for snipers, guns, and here Aaron's mother jumped up in his arms because she said, if they kill you in this moment, I want to die too. Because I couldn't live. Y'all don't know black people, whether it be Bo Bridges in a movie, or any of the rest of y'all. You don't know nothing about us except what we want you to know. And so whether it be a 1776 project that's trying to keep something pure that we never wanted anything to do with, or 1619 project, which is arguing us too. You don't know us. You don't know us. If you want to know us, you understand when a mother says, I'm going to jump in your arms because I got to hope because if this thing comes through your body, it's got to come through mine, too. I can't I can't imagine being here. That's Henry Aaron. So we're going to hear about 
3,771 hits. We're going to hear about his total bases, 2,297, placing him first on the all-time list. There's nobody even close. We're going to hear about 6,856 total bases. Total base is every time you get a hit, you get a single, you get one hit, one base. You get a double, you get two. You get a triple, you get three. You get a home run, you get four. Henry Aaron retired with 6,856 uh, total bases. Next in line is Stan Musial. And Stan Musial is so far behind that there's ain't nobody ever going to capture that record. Henry Aaron also won a couple of gold gloves. Henry Aaron, according to most people play with him, was a fourth or fifth fastest player in Major League Baseball. But he didn't steal a lot of bases because they ain't need him to steal a base. Henry Aaron could be, like Craig Melman says, some people say, you're the greatest baseball player to ever live. Henry Aaron said, I'm with you. And then Henry Aaron retired and became a hugely successful businessman. He and his wife, Billy, became huge philanthropists. When I say huge philanthropists, I got a very good friend of mine, young brother who was in my class when I first started teaching at Temple when I was a graduate student, who is now going on. Uh, he was uh, he helped direct the Mary Lou Williams Center and Mary Lou Williams. Somebody else we'll have to talk about another time. The great musician at a Pittsburgh uh, Center down in North Carolina um, at Duke. Um, no, UNC. Um, but anyway, my man, Nate Thompson, I was asking Nate because, you know, people call and text in, you know, because we share. These are our heroes. We talked about this before when we were talking about Bob Gibson and them, you know, or, or Prince even, musicians pass, athletes pass. We know them, but we know them as markers for our mortality, our moments in time and space, your grandmother, my grandfather. I mean, the relationships we have. But Nate, you know, and I was asleep. Nate and them called apparently last night. They said, yeah, we we paying homage to Henry Aaron. We thought about you. So I asked Nate, uh, I texted him earlier. I said, man, what's your greatest memory of Henry Aaron? Nate, Thompson, young brother, not young. I mean, you know, I'm 55. Nate's in his, I guess, early 40s now. He had a chance to meet Henry Aaron when he was down in North Carolina because Henry Aaron and his wife, Billy Suber Aaron, uh, they founded the Young Scholars Summer Program research. Well, they they, they funded this Young Scholars Research Institute that is at the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. Now, guess who's affiliated with that? Somebody you've interviewed, Sandy Darity, which is why Sandy Darity tweeted out gratitude to Henry Aaron yesterday because the Aarons funded scholarship programs. The, the, the Aarons dumped millions. Morehouse School of Medicine, you know, all these all these places. But 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 the thing that 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 um that Nate remembers was that the Aarons came, and he was able to spend the evening with them, and what he heard mouth to ear was Henry Aaron talking about how much Samuel Du Bois Cook had meant to him. Samuel Du Bois Cook, by the way, was called Du Bois, was named Du Bois after W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the great college presidents. My dear friend and brother, Walter Kimbrough at Dillard University, follows in the steps of Samuel Du Bois Cook, who was out there. I mean, the great he's one of the great HBCU presidents. They don't make HBCU presidents like that anymore, quite frankly. You know, and those who know about those presidents who were jagged, apprenticed by those presidents like a Walter Kimbrough are trying to walk in those steps. But they don't make cats like that anymore. The Mary Bethunes, you know, the Sammy Du Bois Cooks, the Benjamin Mazes, who I'm returning to in about 30 seconds. But Henry Aaron was always talking about non-athletes, non-celebrities, about educators and institution builders that, builders that had inspired him. So after he came out of uh, sports, after he retired, 
He used his acumen, his abilities. He used his intellect. He used his passion to create hugely successful businesses. And out of those revenues, he hired black folk. He donated. He was a great philanthropist, he and his wife. And when he came to the Du Bois Cook Center at Duke, he talked about what Samuel Du Bois Cook had meant to him and what we could do as a people, as black people, to change the world in the ways that Samuel Du Bois Cook talked about it. A great educator. He said, Dr. Du Bois Cook was very important in helping me frame the way I saw the world. And then after the program was over, Nate said, you know, he was kind of like his body man. So you need anything, this kind of thing. And then uh, at the very end, Nate said, he, he, he said to Mr. Aaron, he said, uh, brother, thank you. You've always meant a lot to me. And I want to thank you for doing so much for our people. You know what? This brother, uh, Nate Thompson, brilliant educator in his own right. You know what he says? Uh, Hank Aaron said to him here, Aaron. Mr. Aaron looked at him and said, I wish I had done a lot more. The day Henry Aaron was uh, initiated into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, his family was there, his wife and children, a lot of his teammates, you know, there. Go look it up on YouTube. Henry Aaron, and, and I'm so glad, Roland played it last night. Henry Aaron asks to stand up and be acknowledged some people he had invited to the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame complex to be there with him that day. Marvin Arrington, the mayor of Birmingham, that first wave of black mayors. Marvin Arrington. Maynard Jackson, the mayor of Atlanta. And the dean of HBCU presidents, then and now, the great Benjamin Elijah Mays. This is Dr. Benjamin Mays. And you see Dr. Mays then in advanced years with his little straw hat on from 96 South Carolina. Not too far from Mary McLeod, Bethune-Burbank. 96, because it was 96 miles from this county seat. No, they didn't have a name. Benny Mays, get his book, Born to Rebel. Benjamin Elijah Mays sitting at Cooperstown with his straw hat off, waving at the crowd. Because Henry Aaron, so y'all see a ball player. I am a race man. And when and where I'm here, and to quote Anna Julia Cooper, the race enters with me. So anyway, I'm going to pause there because we're going to talk some more. We can talk more about it, about his relationship with Jackie Robinson, what Jack Roosevelt Robinson meant to him, all this kind of thing. So, And I also wanted to mention the $3 million that he and his wife gave to Morehouse um, Medical Center back in, I think, 2015. Um, he went back there couple of weeks ago with Andy Young to get uh, get the vaccine. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, that's why he's dead or what have you. Um, but Andrew Young was there. He's a year older. He got that same vaccine from Moderna at that same place. And, you know, while I may have mixed feelings about the vaccine, I don't want that to be turned into a reason why Hank Aaron isn't here today. Um, well, uh, well, I'll be honest with you, Karen, because we all saw that, right? And it's an unspoken thing. So I reached out to a few of my very good friends who are medical doctors, and they all said the same thing. We can't say that that had any impact on what happened to Henry Aaron, and we can't say that it didn't. Everybody's different, and I'm watching these reports. Oh, it had nothing to do. Oh, you're a doctor now. <laughs> so, so, yes, everybody be careful, okay? Because we need this vaccine to get back to the new normal we're going to build in this world. But I tell you, boy. This one hits hard, Karen. I know it hits you hard. Look, hey, y'all, we spoke talk about the 1776. When Henry Aaron man transitioned, all I got was a test with Karen with two words, Henry Aaron. 
I know we got to talk about. This is hitting us all. Yeah, I mean, you talk about inflection points and, you know, mm. I started off and I didn't tell you that I was going to play this clip, but it's been sitting in my spirit since I watched it last week. And, you know, the athletes are a point uh, through which America's they're able to accept us. You know, we're heading into a Super Bowl. They love us as long as we are throwing a ball or singing and dancing and shucking a job and they love mm. us. Mm. But, you know, we don't let niggas in the house. How about and I just, I just, you know, and I think about somebody as great as Hank Aaron, who we know through baseball, but as you mentioned, he played so many other sports, Jim Brown, lacrosse. You talked about Allen Iverson. His best sport was football. Charlie football. He won a baseball. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Karen, that's crazy. This boy ain't six feet tall. He's not 170 pounds dripping wet, but he was an all-state quarterback down there in Virginia. That's right. That's right. I mean, Charlie Ward won a Heisman Trophy. They wouldn't let him in the league. He had to play basketball for the Knicks. You know, like we're 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 so multifaceted, but they only see us through one lens, as you said. You know, and and I feel every bit of your your passion mm. and emotion. Mm. You know, y'all don't know us. You don't know. We're us. constantly having to squeeze through your tiny lens and your tiny way in which you see Hank Aaron to to have a broad view to make sure that people are taken care of stuff we will never probably know that he did for us. Oh, there's no question about that. The blueprint for how we survive this. I think you're laying it. Um, and I just, I, I just want to say thank you again, because in many ways, you know, these classes and I can't say it enough and I'll keep saying it as long as I have breath in my body have uh, allowed me to unlock certain things. I know that this process is making a whole lot of people uncomfortable. Oh, Boy. you think? Boy. Yeah, we yeah. ain't doing nothing. But we ain't doing nothing. But so you know what? It's so funny you say that, Karen, because you know there's people like people. We think about slavery. People say, "Why are you always talking about slavery?" That's what that 1776 project in part is about. They don't want to talk about slavery, but they don't want to talk about it for a different reason than we talking about it, because they only see us as the descendants of slaves, which means we slaves too. Like you say, slaves run run ball. But, but we're asking the question, who are we to each other? You know, something that really struck me last night is thinking, Henry Aaron's born in 1934, Mobile. There was a brother named Kasula. He came to the United States during enslavement, and they gave him the name Cujo, Cujo Lewis. We know the name because as a teenager, Kasula, his wife, uh, well, well, they weren't married when this happened, but they eventually get together. They are brought on the last recorded ship that is taken from Africa to what is by then the United States. That ship is called the Clotilda. Our friend Natalie Robertson, Robertson, who is a professor at Hampton University, has written a book called The Slave Ship Clotilda that documents this. In fact, Natalie, Professor Robertson, spent a lot of time in West Africa trace, going a backward trace to where these people came from, this kind of thing. It's a brilliant book, The Slave Ship Clotilda. Uh, Sylvia Ann Juf from the Schomburg wrote a book called Dreams of Africa in Alabama. The cover of the book is the famous picture with Kasula Lewis sitting there as an elder and his two little like great-great-grand daughters and you know by then black people still adopted christianity the little girl's name martha and mary <laughs> but most people now in 2021 may be familiar with the story of kasula lewis and his family 
from and the and the Africans who were kidnapped from the recovered and republished published manuscript uh, that of the testimony of Kasula Lewis given to a young sister from Eatonville, Florida, who had come out of Howard University and then gone to Columbia and who was sent to Florida, uh, sent to uh, to Alabama to take the testimony of Kasula Lewis with a little bit of money that was cobbled together from a couple of people at Columbia and the rest of the money came from the great Carter Godwin Woodson and the Association for the Study of Classical Africa, uh, no, Negro Life and History, now African-American Life and History. Uh, that would be, of course, Eatonville's own Zora Neale Hurston, who then published uh, a partial transcript of that conversation in the Journal of Negro History. But now we know the book because the book has been published. Um, it's called Barracoon. In fact, the sister who edited uh, the notes and, and, and published it, uh, she came and we, we, we picked that book for freshmen to read at Howard in College of Arts and Sciences a couple of years ago. Dr. Dana Lewis and myself, who up until now have managed the Howard University College of Arts and Sciences freshman seminar because uh, it's like 1400 students. So we had them all read the book. And then, you know, she came in because the manuscript for the book had been in the archives at Howard University. It's, it's, in, it's in the archives. They're the original notes, uh, Zora Hurston's piece. But I said all that to say that Henry Aaron was born in 1934. Kasula Kujo Lewis made transition in 1935 for a year. A man who had been stolen over here in an illegal run. Because remember now in the federal constitution, the one that they talk about in the 1776 BS, which is, I love the document. I really do. I think it's an important document because there's so much in that document that looks exactly like what we teach in the schools. And like, get rid of that 1776. You can't get rid of it. It's all, it's all in your children's minds. You better read that damn document in a minute. We'll talk about it for a minute. But at any rate, they like to say in there, we know the slave trade was abolished in the United States in 1808. What they don't say is they kept it going for another 50 years. And the last boat they had a record of is the Clotilda, which came into the bay in Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. A little place called Africa Town. My, my dear friend, Michael Blakey, who's at the College of William and Mary, used to be at Howard University, was one of the key people in the New York African burial ground work. Uh, I was on a call with Mike yesterday and he was talking about the descendants of the folks at uh, Africa town in Africa town, which is in mobile who uh, are fighting now to preserve the memory of mobile to remember in, uh, in Africa town, the history they've kept it alive all these years, but Africa town is in a part of mobile that they've used for everything from a waste dump. There's environmental racism to go on. I mean, all this stuff going on. There's a church where Kasula is buried, where his wife, his family is buried. He became a sexton in the church. He used to sweep up the church. They took care of him. You know, when he got too old, this kind of thing. So the history is there, but they got to fight. Mike was telling us, you know, they got to fight in Africaville in mobile to keep that going. But for one year, Henry Aaron and Kasula Lewis were on this side of the, on top of the earth together. Satchel Page, Leroy Page's father was enslaved. This is not ancient history. Y'all don't know us. And it's not because we have tried to tell you who we are. Make no mistake about it, which is why when you said some people are mad, I'm like, I understand why. Because what y'all don't need to, what y'all need to understand is part of the reason y'all don't know us is because we don't want you to. We don't want you to. 
And so the sports writers now are going to write about Henry Aaron is the legitimate home run king in Major League Baseball. Barry Bonds is not the home run king because Barry Bonds was on steroids. Oh, let's be very clear. You know why Barry Bonds wore number 25? Because his godfather, his father's best friend on the Giants, Barry Bonds' daddy named Bobby Bonds. And you know this better than I do, Karen, because you were a former sports writer. Bobby Bonds, if he hadn't been injured off and on, would probably rewrote the record books as well. His friend on the Giants, Willie Howard Mays. Willie Mays wore number 24. That number retired. By Barry Bonds left the, the Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh uh, Pirates where he had 24. So I'm going to come over here and wear 25 because my godfather was 24. That's retired. But I'm going to put the five on it and I'm going to rewrite the record book. By the way, that's why Ken Griffey Jr. wore 24. Understand when y'all see a 21 on the back of some of these kids that uh, these Africans who, who speak Spanish that y'all call Latinos, that's because of Roberto Clemente wore number 21. Don't ever get it twisted and don't think that some of these young cats don't understand the genealogy they come out of. Baseball is all about memory. I mean, baseball out of all the sports is probably the one. And these black players, you know, and and and, and that's not to diss the young players too, because what you see now with a LeBron James, what you see with all those sisters on the Atlanta Dream in the WNBA, what you see is there is a remembering that's starting to take place. And Henry Aaron was a constant presence in Atlanta. Y'all ask anybody, Henry and Billy Aaron, about what they did and how they kept that connection going. Chad Bozeman goes to visit Henry Aaron when he's filming uh, 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 42, the Jack Robinson part of which was filmed in Georgia. I mean, there's all that going on. But I started to say that... Um, uh, when they said, oh, yeah, they're going to be stories now. Oh, well, Henry Aaron, you know, he was ambivalent about Barry Bonds because of the because uh, of the steroid. That's who we are to other people. You don't know the relationship. We do know this, though. The summer that Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were battling back and forth to break the home run record. Henry Aaron gave some remarks in the interview. What do you think? Some rooting for Sosa. The governance structure who we are to other people, ask the question. But but Sosa's from the Dominican Republic. I mean, here Aaron say black. Oh, internationalism. The same reason that black people in America be rooting for black people in the Olympics from other countries, while all the rest of y'all talking about USA. We be like, let's count the number of blacks on the teams. We going with this team over this other team. We always root for the Jamaicans. See, y'all don't know us. Give a damn about your flag. We're going to tell you we do because it's going to keep you out of our business. But trust, if it's Jamaica versus the U.S. and it ain't all black on black, we're going with Jamaica. <laughs> anyway, I shouldn't even. No, no, no. Do you remember Te Teofilo Stevens? Oh, my God. The box out of Cuba? Yes. Oh. <laughs> tell, 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 uh, you know, folks don't know. Please, Karen, no, tell I me mean, about you the know, story of Stevens. Um, the Olympics. I, I just remember rooting for him because uh, I, you know, I'm. I was made to believe that Cuba was, you know, our enemy. Yeah. And then I see this black man with hair like my daddy's, mm. skin like my dad. And I'm like, T I remember Teofilo Stevenson. And, and he, I think he fought for a long time for Cuba, like sure well did. past, well past the age that he should have been fighting. And I, I remember <laughs> rooting for him. Yes. Every single big strapling, almost Muhammad Ali-esque in his physique. Very much so. Stevenson. Taylor mm. Stevenson, as you're saying that, it, it is so true, you know, um, just naturally. Like, no one had to tell me nope. that I should be rooting for this man in the Olympics. That's right. He had a Cuban uh, name on his on his uh, back. How about that? Not America. That 
That is so funny you said that. Karen, I had almost forgotten about that. Oh, you just brought a flood up because we were kids. We didn't know. We just watched the TV. But you're going to pick the black dude. <laughs> we don't even care what's on your chest. Oh, man. And he was, and I mean, uh, he was, he was, it was poetry. It was like Ali. He was amazing. Oh, yeah. Pupilo Stevenson. My God. Yes. You know, it's funny, Karen, you say that because. And again, Henry Aaron does this for us, for you, for me, for people of a certain age. We're not advanced elders. They got other kind of stories. See, my mother's generation, my mother's 92. And she's from Alabama, central Alabama. For them, they remember when those players weren't just athletes. They were, in fact, I love this. Henry, Major League Baseball did this. Uh, it was around the, I guess maybe it meant for the 50th anniversary of Robinson's integrating white major league baseball, at least openly integrating white major league baseball. Because those of you who know, we a lot of us know, of course, that um, if you spoke Spanish and were just light enough, they would let you in. They call you a Cuban or something like that. In other words, it was black people playing white major league baseball before. And if you go to the 19th century, you go back to like uh, the book called The Divided Heart of Mo, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker. Fleetwood Walker, now you're talking about post Civil War era, there's a whole history of black, not that we care. Because it's all about Andrew Rue Foster, 18th and Vine in Kansas City in 1920s, the formation of the Negro Leagues, but or bringing together of the existing teams and then creates more stuff. But so my mother and them generation, those in their 80s and 90s, they remember when you couldn't just be a ball player. Some of the criticism of Willie Mays, for example, fairly or unfairly, was he didn't want to get involved in politics. Aaron was always a race man. And in fact, like I said, the 50th anniversary of Major League Baseball uh, letting Jackie Robinson in so that Branch Ricky could make all the money and eventually the rest of them too. You know, I act like this was all altruistic. No, nah, these cats is counting bottom down. In fact, Branch Ricky was an enemy of the Negro Leagues. We talked about that when we talked about Effa Manley. But in some ways he was. But um, in that 50th anniversary, they, do, they did a video and they're talking about Robinson. And so I, I love this video because forget the Major League Baseball propaganda. That's the social structure. We know you want to give yourself. You're not honoring Jackie Robinson. You honoring yourself. Anytime you see them honoring, but Satchel Page was clear about it. Now I'm a second class immortal. In other words, you're bringing me in here now to wash yourself. You're bringing me in here now for the same reason you put Carol Swain as the uh, uh, the co-chair of the 1776 commission that Trump did. She black woman. She for years was on faculty of Vanderbilt, my hometown of Nashville. But the reason you put her there because she black. You just because you want to show how great you are. We know how y'all play this game. But in the in the in the little segment they did, like three four minute segment, they start with Jack Robinson. They have Rachel Robinson talk about you know her husband. And then you see the generation that Robinson influenced. In fact, Howard Bryant said this uh, last night, and it's in his book. You get the last hero again. You know, I want to engage in hyperbole, but part of remembering is how you narrate, how you tell the story. And so in this moment right now, January 21st, 20, I'm sorry, January 23rd, 2021, Henry Aaron's the last hero, the last hero. I'm saying, yeah, Willie Mays is still alive. Billy Williams is still alive. But Henry Aaron, I can't think. Jim Brown's still around. Bill Russell's still around. Hope they stay around another 50, 100 years. But Henry Aaron, mm, mm, mm. so in that piece, then you see the generation that Robinson influenced. And as Howard Bryant writes in The Last Hero, as Henry Aaron said in numbers of interviews, when I saw Robinson, he said, that's my way. He said, because baseball for me 
that was my way forward. Father, you know, you know, mother scrapping by mobile, doing what they doing, keeping the family together, you know, you know, making a roof over the head. Henry Aaron out there on the railroad tracks, picking up bottle caps, hitting them with sticks, perfecting the style. Remind me of Isaiah Thomas talking about, you knew I was going to be a good shooter because in Chicago, we had a bike, uh, a bike wheel we had knocked out of spokes out of that we shooting it. If I can do that in the middle of the night in, in Chicago, I can damn sure drain a jumper for Indiana University in the business. Come on now. So at any rate, uh, Aaron talking about the meaning of Robinson, Harold Bryant says in The Last Hero, he said, I took a risk as a sports writer, as a writer of a biography on one person. I devoted a whole chapter to Robinson, named on name by, about Jackie Robinson, in a book about Hank Aaron, because Henry Aaron was talking about what Robinson means. He said, I saw Robinson. I said, that's my path out. Robinson coming out of Kansas City Monarchs before he goes to the Dodgers. Aaron coming out of the Indianapolis Clowns before he joins the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. Um, uh, Mays coming out of the Birmingham Black Barons before he goes to the New York Giants. But you see in, in the little clip, after they do Robinson and Rachel comes on, then you see the generation influenced by Robinson, Henry Aaron, Maury Wills, you know, Ernie Banks. Yeah, these cats' ancestors now. Maury Wills from D.C., right? But Henry Aaron says this. He said, Jack Robinson taught us that you had a duty you had a duty to represent beyond the field so when you took the field you had to have a certain dignity you could hear Henry Aaron he talking about baseball this could be the first black person some people see but it ain't even about you you're gonna respect me but this is about those little black kids see that little girl over there peeking around the corner looking at me I can't come out in public and be anything other than something her, her brother, and the whole family respect. Because they didn't just come here to see me play baseball. They came here to see themselves win. They cheering for me the same reason that, Karen, you and I cheer for Tipello Stevenson. They cheering for me. And so my mother's generation and them, they looking at them like, and these cats, by definition, represent the race. When Robinson would come to Philadelphia, you had some of the old heads in Philly, Nate and them homies, you know, my adopted homies after living almost 20 years in Philly. Them old heads would tell you when Jack Robinson and them would come and the Dodgers would come and play the Phillies, black people in Philly would come and sit on the first base side and cheer for Robinson. And when he get on base, steal, steal, steal. And the Philadelphians is like, you ain't cheering for the Phillies? Nah, F the Phillies, y'all racist. We cheer for Jackie Robinson. <laughs> the Dodgers, yeah, whatever. We cheering for Robinson. Did you what's get it through your thing? Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, all them pictures from the Negro Leagues, another mobile cat who, you know, never got a chance. And so when our generation, Karen, you and I come along and our people now, now we're talking about folks now in their 50s, their 40s. A few folks in their 40s. I mean, I remember this well. Henry Aaron's on the back end of his career. And you're right, dear fellow Stevenson fought forever. <laughs> no question because part of it was cuban propaganda too the cubans are like propping him up like see this is a black man he's cuban and the cubans of course you know this is we could talk about that another time the political history i mean they help liberate south africa when they go over there and fight in angola versus south and south uh the the uh forces the uh frontline forces the south african uh military but when our generation comes along we have the double blast we got the blast from our parents, our grandparents, the old people in our communities, our churches, our community centers, our barbershops, beauty parlors, who who venerate these people. 
who teach it. And then we get to get that last glimpse of them as the new generation comes in who have been influenced by them. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, my very, very dear brother, close associate, and master teacher, Larry Crow, and I, and I, and I told you this, Karen, Larry Crow, who uh, works with the history makers, one of the greatest historians we have in any form. Larry reminded me after watching One Night in Miami, and he said, you know, Crow, Crow killed me with this. I was like, Crow, I should have caught it because we were talking, when we were talking about it, he actually texted me after, and he said, you know, A-B-K-C-O, Abco, which uh, Abco is a co-producer of that One Night in Miami. And folks who don't know who Abco is, y'all need to look them up because the owner of Abco was Alan Klein. His family still runs it. So if you got the impression in One Night in Miami that that, art, that, that discussion Sam Cooke was part of in terms of what I own and what I get is why I'm in this because that's how you get black power. Part of that money's coming to me. That money's coming. They don't even know they bet. Yeah. Alan Klein owned, uh, the Klein family, Abco owns all of Sam Cooke's stuff. And if you see that documentary on how he died and what he died, don't ever get it twisted. So what you watched in One Night in Miami, that's good in theory, but in practice, Sam Cooke was robbed. Well, can we talk? Can we talk about that for because it is, yeah, right? you know, I think many of us go, um, you know, we're absolutism, absolutists. You know, like if if there's something impure, I'm not messing with it. Right? We can't do that. We can't live. <laughs> So can you, you know, as we suss through the, the 1776 project, 1619, you know, like it's almost as if people are looking for that one thing that's wrong to discount the whole thing. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and I keep saying we need to chew up the meat, take the nourishment, spit out the bones. Yes. Take what's good and build from there. But we can't do this, you know, and at the same time, I think we need to be zero tolerant as it relates to people who, in our community who mean us uh, no good. Mm. we man it's exhausting it's, it's so much juggling we have to we got to figure out what's right what's not and mm. at the same time hold people accountable to do the right thing uh to be the last hero to be dignified to to in a way that as i've said before that that these young people deserve us to be their you know their elders we need to embody all of that at the exact same time as we take in this information and figure out what's right. Cause I, I, I knew that. And at the same time, as I'm watching that discourse with Sam Cook, I'm like, like eyebrow up. I watched the documentary, the two, the two killings of Sam Cook. Is it, I think yes, that's what yes, called. Yes, yes. And I know that he didn't die the way they say he died. You know, oh, wow. um, I know that there was something more to it. And, and I know it has something to do with power. He didn't make it to 35. Otis Redding didn't make it Ooh. to it. Did he even make it into his thirties? Otis no. Redding. I mean, you no, think Otis Redding was in his twenties when he passed. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's like those powerful brothers setting the course. Mm. What, what it looks like they they didn't make it, and somehow you know Sam Cooke was lascivious and he was you know doing shenanigans. But yeah, why didn't he have his masters when he died? When that was his whole entire thing, and the people that produced this, <sighs> what do we do with that? The same way Mick Jagger was a producer of Get On Up. I mean, in other words, you wait till they die. And we and see, it's interesting, isn't it, Karen? You and I, we both remember when James Brown, we, we wouldn't have known it as children, but when James Brown was buying radio stations. Remember Mahalia Jackson Chicken? In other words, 
they were trying, you know what I'm saying? These are not, we remember, we, that's in our lifetime. And there are a lot of people in here. So, I mean, Stevie Wonder has radio stations. Oh, no question. That station in LA that became a, a, a center for culture. No, I think uh, chewing up the meat, spitting out the bones is an incredibly difficult exercise under the best circumstances. But when you're in a perpetual crouch to use, and thanks Kareem for dropping it in, that was his nickname, wasn't it? Dear fellow Stevenson, the touch of death. <laughs> oh man, you bringing back memory. It's a lot of people in here right now who never heard. They gonna, they gonna, y'all gonna lose y'all minds watching this brother box. But anyway, so, and of course he was amateur because they didn't have professional sports in Cuba. So you never would have seen T.F.O. Stevenson versus Muhammad Ali, which is, of course, as kids, we, was, we want to see. We wanted that, yeah. Yeah, that was, it wouldn't happen. And he was a little younger, right? So, um, but um, but that's a different, you know, I, I'll say this, because of, 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 of what you created, because of this platform, and because, because you did it in a plague, when we're all locked in place, it just sent me back into reading. And I told, I, I told a couple of friends of mine in the last couple of weeks, well, whatever time I got left, I really, when you get into it, it's almost like you don't want to do nothing else. I know. I had that luxury. See the 1776 advisory committee. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, let's, let's talk. About, these people here, they are, they are supported by institutions, and we always talk about institutions. Individuals don't be institutions, and if you get too close to something transforming, you might get taken out, like King, like Sam Cooke. You know, I mean. Uh, Otis Redding died in a plane crash. Well, you know, a plane crash, so you couldn't say, you know, remind me, remember, uh, and during the so called golden age of hip hop, Stetsasonic had that song on Africa, A F R I C K, Angola, Soweto, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, and Botswana. So let me speak about the motherland, right? And there's a line in there where he said, you know, I cried a whole week because Samora Michelle of Mozambique was killed in a crash that couldn't be explained. And this is a New book that just came out called Some More Mozambique, Some More Michelle, a life cut short. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about didn't Clemente die in a plane crash? Sure did. Because okay. They, because okay. they because he overstuffed a raggedy ass plane. He couldn't get the planes he wanted. They gave trying to provide disaster relief. Trying to provide disaster relief. 1972. And then he is inducted into the Hall of Fame or second class immortality in some way. Although they have named an award for him. And that's the thing, right? Henry Aaron, you know, Henry, I was gonna ask, did Ron Brown die in a plane crash? He sure did. Okay, I'm just asking. Yeah, Go he ahead. did. All right, well, look, 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 you, you know, you provoking, you know, you look, those of you who know the rest of that story, y'all go look for it. We won't even say that because, because this is where it gets crazy, right? As, as the old saying goes, it ain't paranoia if uh, it's true, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and it's certainly in paranoia if you have a good reason to believe they after you it ain't it, you know it ain't paranoia if they are after you now who they are who you are may switch from piece to piece but in terms of this this 77 76 commission these people are subsidized in other words they are they are backed by institutions and individuals don't beat institutions y'all so for, i'll just say this very quickly for an opening thing just very quickly we're gonna spend a lot of time on this because this is something we're gonna it ain't going away because this ain't the beginning of it. This is the continuation of it. The president of the United States Advisory 1776 Commission that they've now taken off the current president's 
website, the White House website, was chaired by Larry P. Uh, Arn. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. They got a uh, they got a DC campus. In nineteen no, in twenty nineteen, they had a uh, a visitor. Uh, Hillsdale College, Hillsdale College out of Michigan, that was founded the same year as Notre Dame, eighteen forty four, had a visit from a federal judge who stood up May 21st, 2019 and said, I am a big fan of Hillsdale College. And she said, the title of my speech today will be the obligation of duty. And duty in the face of intense public pressure to the contrary. This judge who gave that talk would come back in May of 2020 and give the commencement speech. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. He is the chair. He was the chair of the President's 1776 Commission. The judge I'm referring to is named Amy Coney Barrett. Since what y'all gonna understand about these people? You think it's a victory because you took something off a website? It's down. You can't. It's not gonna hurt us. Fool! Here come the historians. It's inaccurate. I'd be embarrassed. Oh, you think this was about history? <laughs> you may lawyers. We're on the President's 76 Commission. You know how many people who are connected to the Federalist Society, either directly or indirectly? Victor Davis Hanson, that's what we talked about a little bit last week. Victor Davis Hanson, I know that name. I got a lot of Victor David Hanson's work. These cats don't have to be historians. They are political scientists. They are lobbyists. They are former governors, like Phil Bryant was the governor of Mississippi. They are, They. you better read this. Why? This is their framework and their philosophy. And talk about chewing up the meat. And spitting out the bones, we can go, you know, I went page by page in here, but we ain't going to do it right now. I encourage y'all to read it. We might have to, matter of fact, that may have to be one of those things we do for an enhanced thing. We can kind of go through this and go through related documents because here's the thing. The fight in this country is a fight over foundations. We're not looking to remember America. We want y'all to leave us alone and everybody be treated fairly. Now, that gets lost in the conversation. The 1619 Project, it seems to me, and knowing either directly or indirectly, most of the people who wrote for that, Nicole Hannah-Jones, to, I mean, you know, Leah Tam, but Jess, I'm thinking about the people who are prominent names, and, you know, I got a chance, Wesley Morris, I mean, you know, I met many of them when they when they came down to the New York, uh, I'm sorry, to the uh, Museum of African History and Culture, and they had a, had a long day seminar, and I participated, you know, on, on all through the entire day, including a wonderful session with high school and middle school students. Shout out to all the teachers who brought their, um, brought their students from the DMV, you know, the, the area, to the museum. And, you know, Spencer Crew at the time was the interim director and my good friend, Kinshasa Conwell, the, the, the deputy director, uh, Jake Silverstein, the editor of New York Times Magazine, you know, the whole crew, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, you know, is taking all kind of fire unfairly. I think the 1619 Project ultimately is an attempt to recast the narrative of what this country is. And that is heroic work. That is important work. It is not nearly original work because black people have been doing it all along in the black press. You know, it's interesting um, thinking about, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. That's starting to my Chancellor Williams. Uh, 
We'll come to that in a second. The 1776 Commission seeks to defend the white nationalist rendering. Because here's the thing. We get caught up in what's the truth, what's not the truth. No, no. There's no truth as such. One of the things they say very early on in the report is that, and let me see if I can find it, because you're not marked all over it, and I write very small, so you all know, those of you who know me, I, I just hold it up so you, you know, when I start taking notes, they just get real little. It's smaller than the print, right? So I'm writing it. Take me forever to go through the thing. When they start talking about um, the idea of facts, like they say, for example, the facts of our founding are not partisan. They are a matter of history. Controversies about the meaning of the founding can begin to be resolved by looking at the facts of our nation's founding. Let's pause right there. That's the first evasion. You can have one fact interpreted many different ways. So facts don't resolve the question of meaning. In fact, fact and meaning are two separate things. So understand why the historians getting caught up on what's factual and not. That's not the point. Can we all agree that the United States separate, well, what became the United States separated from England? Yes, that's the fact. Now, they did it and that they did it because they wanted to be free from them and they wrote documents. Yes, that's the fact. Now, if you want to argue about emphasizing the meaning of those facts, you want to get close to the people who were in the room and the people who are descendants of those who are in the room and how they looking at it. And you've never asked black people what they thought. So the, the, the 1619 Project begins to gesture toward that recasting but here's the problem. Here's a deep problem with this. And here's where the thing gets real ugly. Some things ain't going gently into that good night. Some of these things can't be discussed politely and end up in polite conversation. Sometimes you can't have peace without confrontation. This is the man, Lerone Bennett. Yeah, man, I started pulling, you know, I love Lerone Bennett. That was my man. So I started pulling more Lerone. He got a book called Confrontation in Black and White. He's got another book called The Negro Mood. These are little books. And he's talking about how, you know, at some point you got to make a decision. Are you going to confront this thing? Because there's going to, if you don't confront it, it's going to take you out. It's like going to the doctor. I got a pain in my side. I ain't going, it'll go away. Then when it finally gets so bad in the mercy room, well, you know, now you got a tumor and it's metastasized, but it, we could have caught it. When did you feel it? What, two years ago? Confrontation! You know what I'm saying? We're going to die. These people are clear. They are trying to defend the thing that is dying. Now, what does confrontation look like? That's one reason I wore my one of my Cobra shirts. I have many of these, you know, Mastriki, you know, Juwanza, Kamal Juwanza, my Indianapolis people. This is when we were in Detroit. This is last year John Conyers was alive. This was the 30th annual convention we had a couple of years ago in Detroit. Um, you know, HR 40. Hey, hey, Joe Biden, Madam Vice President, let's get HR 40 passed immediately. Sheila Jackson Lee, the legislation that she picked up after John Conyers introduced it in just about every Congress, except I think the years Obama, the Democrats had control of all three branches, or all two branches, two branches, legislative and executive. And Obama kind of said, eh, y'all pull that off of it. Shout out Barack Obama again for being timid. Confrontation, bro. Confrontation. All right. Tell them what HR 40 is. And before you do that, also, what are the three things? Because there's a lot of conversation about the Biden-Harris administration, their first executive orders and what have you, not black facing. They don't really oh, care about. Really? You know, yeah. I, 
Karen, how do you answer that? Because I know you've been answering it all week. Yeah, I'm like, um, I, I like wearing a mask for the first hundred days because there still is a pandemic. I'm not mad at that. Um, I like putting money in people's pockets, which is the, the other executive order to to get the stimulus together. I think um, there was one more. Um, I know folks are mad about immigration. I'm like, why? Really? Yeah, I'm it. We, who we have uh, allowed ourselves to be uh, indoctrinated into. I, I believe damaging pro you know damaging habits. It's um, killing us. It's killing us. Let's be let, let's be very clear. Let's be very clear about that. Um we don't have any friends. Okay, and politicians are not your friend. One of the things the 1776 project does is say that liberty and justice and freedom and all the things that we now say are American values that are being threatened, they say it very early on that. Our nation, which is a fiction, we talk about that. We, need, we probably need another another Saturday to talk about talk through this report in detail. You know, those were reserved for Americans. We think that, and they say here, we, we think everybody in the world should have them. But make no mistake, when we're talking about them, we're talking about them strictly in terms of America. In other words, it's the job of America to guard those things here. We have fallen into this blackface nativism, so that while we're focusing on the domestic agenda of federal politics. Please make no mistake about it. In terms of domestic, in terms of international policy, the Democrats and Republicans don't think differently about the world. The Democrats like to be a little bit more, well, a lot more exercising of what uh, Joseph Nyanim calls soft power, influence. So they want to engage and also going to rejoin the Paris Accords. Got to do that because the ball is going to mess up and we ain't going to be here. Um, the World Health Organization, Dr. Fauci, he's the hero. Make him the face. He's going to be the guy to the WHO. And now he's all relieved and everybody's like, yeah, this is great. Man. Um, <laughs> rejoin all the unilateral agreements. See, can you stitch back together the Iran nuclear agreement? And if we talk about those things at all, we talk about them from an imaginary perspective. And we never stop. While we're celebrating the first black secretary of defense, we should be asking, what's your position on AFRICOM? Our family over there in Africa, are y'all still undermining African governments? Joe the mummy Biden is already, and I shouldn't know well, why not, because he's I don't really, you know, who cares? Let's all say the thing that ain't nobody really want to say out loud, which is <laughs> uh we wondering if Joe Biden gonna make it four years and you see Kamala Harris in all the pictures. So anyway, so I'm just saying, let's just let's leave it there. But Joe Biden, one of the first things he said last week, I'm gonna we're gonna recognize Juan Guaido as the leader of Venezuela. Juan Guaido is a whole clown, a whole ass clown that has been propped up by the United States government, meaning Trump administration and the Biden administration now, who he said, to undermine and destabilize the government of Venezuela. You can have any opinion you want on the government of Venezuela, uh, on uh, Nicolas Maduro, the man that preceded him, Hugo Chavez, but what you shouldn't do is take sides with them on foreign policy when it involves other countries because the white nationalism in terms of how it expresses itself internationally, there's not a difference philosophically, not a much of a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. So when those executive orders went out, and I'm talking now strictly to the uh, American descendants of slavery folk, I'm talking to y'all dead in your ear as one. You understand? My mama people out of Alabama, my father's people, North Carolina, Tennessee. I'm talking, yeah, yeah. My people felt the lash. And let me tell you right now, tell you right now, if you think it's going to be to your advantage, I'm sorry, if you think it's going to be to your disadvantage because Joe Biden signed an executive order last week that is relieving Liberians of the fear of being 
deported at any moment, you're fooled. It's, it's nothing out of your pocket. In fact, it is when we have embraced internationally the struggles of people other places that we've made the most advancements here. This is, we might have to even devote a whole Saturday to that. The question of internationalism, somebody mentioned in Twitter, I started the Grenadian Revolution and I very quickly went, you know, started pulling, I, mean, I got out of Maurice Bishop's speech, the Grenadian Revolution, the anniversary of the Grenadian Revolution. Um, 1983, the man that uh, Gil Scott Heron called the gladiator invader of Grenada, uh, J Ronald Reagan, forgive me for cussing, <laughs> invaded, <laughs> invaded Grenada. And then Clint Eastwood, forgive me for cussing again, makes a movie, Heartbreak Ridge, and Mario Van Peebles in him in it, and American Negroes cheering for Clint Eastwood. You invaded a little island who was known to white people because that's where nutmeg, a lot of nutmeg come from. But the problem you have is they were socialists. This is one of the things they attacked in the 1776. People can't spell socialism, but they've been taught, we all been taught to be afraid of it. And so but the problem with Maurice Bishop and the New Jewel movement and what happened in the wake of the independence movements that preceded them and then they got internal conflicts and things going on. The problem is that, as it was stated by the CIA and, uh, and, and, and American, uh, uh, American agencies, federal agencies, who pursue enemies foreign and domestic. Foreign enemies, Grenada. Domestic enemies, Martin Luther King. Understand, you might not think of yourself as connected internationally. They always do. And you would never be trusted in this country. But you know what they didn't like about Maurice Bishop? And they said that. They said, Castro, we can demonize him. And we may get some pushback, you know, and we got to get a Sada Shakur back. But, you know, he speaks Spanish. The problem we got with Maurice Bishop and Grenada, they're like Cuba, but they speak English. So when Maurice Bishop comes to New York or comes and gives a talk, you don't need no translator. Black people are like, yeah, Alutua Continua, which is all, which they always, you know why we say the struggle continues in Portuguese? Alutua Continua. Because among other things, the, 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 the Portuguese colonized the Mozambicans. So when they say Alutua Continua, they are saying the struggle continues. But guess what? Maurice Bishop comes, he says, the struggle continues. And the cab driver in Harlem is like, yeah, the struggle continues. We got to get rid of this guy. You don't never pick the Americans who are dogging you here over somebody who's taking an L, especially when they look like you. So those ADOS artists, look, that, that, that executive order that postponed or forestalled the Liberians getting uh, deported, that's a good thing. Also, they got rid of the Muslim ban. But guess what? The Muslim ban is also an African ban. Yep. Nigeria was on that list. So everybody, you know, how do you think it feel? You call yourself ADOS and your best friend is Florence Nwako because she was born in Houston or Nashville or New York City, but her parents or grandparents came from Nigeria and she got family worried about this. Not no more. They got rid of it. And I don't care where you were born. If you say assalamu alaikum, somebody say like salam to you, you on the enemies list, especially if you look black. I was asking my students last week, you know, class started a couple weeks ago. I said, y'all tell me, put it in the chat. We all on Zoom. When did Howard University begin to be referred to as the Mecca? They don't know. I said, why? Some of them guessed and they guessed correctly. They said, Malcolm X? Nation of Islam? Yes, it was the 1960s. Y'all think about this. Who, who in the hell gonna call a black place the Mecca? Mecca, 
as in Islam, as in Muslims, as in Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, okay, uh, Malcolm X, understand, Betty Shabazz, this is part of the Black Panther. You're never going to be accepted because there's always going to be a suspicion. You're not with us. This is what the 1776 thing is. Look, even, even beyond that, you know, um, Sam Pollard, that was the- uh, the Sam uh, Pollard, I, yes. The great Sam Pollard, you know, we yeah. were talking this week about FBI, uh, M- MLK FBI. Yes. And, you know, we talked last week about Martin Luther King, 75% uh, according to the Harris poll, Ooh. disapproval rating. Black people did not approve of him in 1968 when he was assassinated. But he was the, you you talked about A. Philip Randolph and, and uh, Roy Wilkins and others. Martin Luther King, the FBI surveilled him 24 hours a day. And they identified him as the most dangerous man, Negro in America. And they said that they were going to use all of their resources to destroy him. Why? Because he moved away from the Christian nonviolence towards black nationalism. Yes. And that's what. Well, black internationalism. No, we're not just America. He's but he standing. wasn't plotting insurrection. He wasn't bringing up arms. He wasn't. His danger to America was that he was able to galvanize people around an ideal that brought them together, black and white, around economic empowerment, around justice, and that made him the most dangerous. So you think about him, the FBI, hmm. identifying a man who only wanted freedom and equality for people and hmm. money in people's pockets, the right to work. He was dangerous. He was very dangerous. He was very dangerous. And, and like you said, I mean, this is why like you said, when you read Where Do We Go From Here, or you even listen to that last speech he gave, the tour the mountain, uh, the mountaintop speech there at Mason Temple in Memphis, not the last five minutes, not the last two minutes. Go hear the whole 41, 42 minute thing where he starts out coming through world history and he ends up at the end. You know, he has been... Uh, kind of, uh, and this is why, again, we talked about last week, uh, Vincent Harding wrote the book Martin Luther King Jr., The Inconvenient Hero. He has been edited for convenience. So you can make him like a, almost a Jesus figure, which is why I remember one time in the National Archives, I gave a talk, they asked me to come down, it was a Black History Month something, and when we talk about Lincoln, they always want to talk about Lincoln. I said, okay. So I, uh, I the name of my talk was Abraham Lincoln, American Jesus. I said, because somebody got to die. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I used the, the template of the Trinity. George Washington is the father. Abraham Lincoln is the son. And Martin King is the Holy Ghost. I mean, what do you mean by that? See, you can't never question the father, but he's too far for you. To, to, he had division. All of this, by the way, uh, in the 1776 Commission, they say, well, George Washington uh, signed to free his slaves. <laughs> That's true. But the question you got to ask yourself is, how many of them Africans they had in Mount Vernon did George Washington own? And how many did Martha own? And the answer to that question is George Washington, who was given his first African to enslave at age 11, when Washington married Martha Custis, she, her first husband had died without a will, and she inherited everything, including like 130-something Africans. She had more enslaved Africans than he did. And so when he left in his will, he said, the people who I, the descendants of those who I own, he used to sell them. He used to bargain with them. He used to barter with them. He used to chase he, after them. No, oh, yeah. On a judge. On a judge. <laughs> and out to own a judge. And Hercules and. left Philly like, peace. I ain't never coming back. Yeah, read Erica Dunbar's book. I mean, Erica's the latest one to talk about this. You know, on a judge up here in New England, like, okay, yeah, I'll come back uh, if you guarantee me freedom of my children. He said, what the hell? He said, peace. And you ain't never going to see me again. See me again. What she called? 
uh, what was the name of uh, because she did a, a children's version, like a young people's version. Never caught, never caught Erica Dunbar. Go get that. Um, but yeah, Hercules the cook, they, they we uh, we out. They when they got to Philly, look, Philly then and now, you know, they trail. They said, We out, we not gonna come. So, Washington though, and his will, yes, 16 1776 pride, yeah, commission, that's true. He sure did. He said, uh, upon my wife's death, oh, upon your wife's death. And he didn't have the power to free what they call dowry slaves. Dowry slaves mean he, when he married her, she owned these other Africans. I don't have the power to free them. So not only was the majority <laughs> did get freed, you wrote in your will that the ones you had the power to free, they should be freed after your wife died. But watch this. Not even a year later, 17, uh, 1800, he died since 1799, I think. Martha freed those Africans, or the descendants of those Africans that Washington had enslaved. You know why? Karen, you're going to love this. Who are Africans to other people? Who are they to each other? Who are Africans to Martha Washington? You're racist. Who, by the way, her descendants moved upriver to a place called Arlington Plantation. The Custis family, one of the descendants married a cat named Robert E. Lee. Arlington, which is now National Cemetery, began life as a plantation with the enslaved Africans of the George Washington family through Martha Washington. And that's one of the reasons why when the Civil War jumped off, two things happened. Number one, I think it was Meggs, was it Montgomery Meggs, who was the secretary of the army. They started burying people in beginning in Mrs. Lee's Rose Garden saying, you ain't never come back up here. You're traitor to the race. I'm traitor to the, to the country, Robert E. Lee. So they started burying people there and they buried a bunch of Africans out there. If you go over this part of the cemetery where you just see tombstones that say citizen, those are the Africans who had come out of enslavement and they buried them in Arlington. That's when it became a national cemetery. Number two of the two, that's also where they had Freedman's Village. They had one in Arlington, they had it in Arlington, Virginia, and they had Arlington National Cemetery. Because if you look at Arlington National Cemetery, it's in DC, it's also in Arlington, Virginia. So, I mean, all that's the same thing. Anyway, so this is what you're going to love. Who are Africans to other people? They're things to make yourself proud because you gave them citizenship or they're, in, or they're slaves or whatever. But who are they to each other? They don't give a damn. In other words, before George Washington died, they was breaking tools. They was running away. After he died and they found out that those who had been brought and, they, and the descendants of those who have been brought by him into the marriage. Wait, imagine this. This is where they need to make a movie. Let's get Regina King on this one right here. Or say, Regina, sis, make this movie. Imagine the scene. You in Mount Vernon. The man is dead. The sister comes out the house, which is why I love Malcolm X. One of the things he really did that really kind of hurt us is when he made that analogy between house Negroes and field Negroes, it made us think everybody in the house was a sellout and everybody in the field was trying to get away. That ain't true. Lots of lots of cats that was about that life lived in the house. And there were some Negroes that wasn't trying to do nothing else. It was living in the field. So at any rate, imagine this. The old man is dead. Sister comes out the house. She didn't learn how to read clandestinely. General Washington left a will. What did it say? Say any, any of us who he owned, when Mrs. died, we free. Oh, well, shit, let's kill her. <laughs> Martha Washington found out that there were rumors of plots at Mount Vernon because they had found out that some of them would be freed upon her death. Martha Washington went to the courthouse and freed them Negroes. <laughs> Shit, I'm not even risking it. Y'all done found out that he said that y'all free when I die. I can't eat no more. I can't sleep. 
Oh no. They- <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love our people. <laughs> they was gonna kill her. HR 40, really yeah. quickly. I don't want to forget that. Yeah, um, they, yeah, we got people they, to ask questions. HR 40 is the reparations bill. When John Conyers first introduced it, um back in the 80s. In fact, this is this is where the National uh, Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America was founded. It was people who had been struggling for reparations for years, since the 1890s, Callie House and them, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, Queen Mother Moore and them, the Republic of New Africa, uh, Amari Obadelli, Gaidi Obadelli. Some of them Africans are still around. Shout out to my people down in Miami, all those cats, uh, General Rashid and all them coming forward. A lot of people writing about it now, and then a lot of people are in it, still doing it. Uh, Nkichi Taifa and all the folks are involved in that. Ajitoro, Aj- 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 a lot of sisters like... Um, um, Mashrika Jawans and them, Kamal Jawans and them, all the people in, in, in Cobra, very important. So 89 is founded in part because John Kyrie's is in Detroit, which is a major hub of the reparations movement. Reparations Ray Jenkins, for example. I mean, so many people very important in this movement. Conrad Rail out of Chicago. And I could go on and on and on, but I want Herbert Dowertree out of New York. I mean, we can talk about a lot of these people. Ron Daniels out of Ohio, by the way, but I just thinking about these people. These are people I struggled with who brought me into this thing, trained me into this thing. And who, when I hear people now talking about reparations, you know, I'm glad to see Ta-Nehisi and them writing stuff. And, you know, Sandy Darity's been doing scholarship on it for 30, 40 years. It's very important. But these are the people who, when they see that, they say, good, let's keep pushing. Let's keep pushing. They're not saying don't do it. But they're saying, so the eight eyes people who are coming on now saying that nobody was talking about it until y'all brought it up. Hey, let's use that momentum to keep going, too. Let's not beef about this. As you say, chew up the meat, spit out the bones. H.R. 40 was introduced by John Conyers in the late 80s, House Resolution 40. 40 as in 40 acres and a mule to establish a commission to study what would be old black people. What are the rationale for reparations? It ain't even the thing to give it. And so what we see now after Congressman Conyers made transition shortly after this meeting in, in Detroit, we were all there for the 30th anniversary. He came and spoke by then late in his nineties, you know, but still, you know, Hey, we got to get this thing. And, and so Sheila Jackson Lee, out of Texas, Juneteenth and all that, you know, I'll pick up the baton. And it was tweaked a little bit to go from not just a study commission, but to make recommendations and proposals. So now, for the first time since uh, the first two years of the first Obama uh, administration, the Democrats have the House, have the Senate, and the White House. So it's time now to pass H.R. 40 because, and y'all go double check me on this, but pretty sure I'm correct. The only congressional terms where H.R. 40 has not been introduced for the first two years of the Obama administration. And people think I come for Obama, but I don't come for Barack Obama. I just ask you to look at the record. And so let me let me, let me, let me end with this. So that's H.R. 40. But in terms of that's legislation, that's coming late. But these executive orders, here, when some people say that, you know, and I'm here, this black people, I've been in conversations with black folk, and then I don't even get in no conversation with because I ask questions they can't answer. Anybody who's saying you know, he taking care of immigrants with the border wall and DACA, you know, uh, and not taking care of us. Let me ask you a question. So, is there anyone you know or you imagine who was terrified that they're going to get put out of their apartment in, in the next couple of days or weeks? That because there's an executive order now that says we're going to forestall all evictions through at least the end of March and then until we can get into the legislature and pass some more legislation. But at least now you ain't got to worry about it. Is there anyone? In terms of food insecurity, SNAP and WIC and all that, because of the executive order now is going to expand those programs by at least as much as 15% in advance of getting this other legislation through. Is there anyone you know who DACA may apply to who came here 
not from Mexico or uh, Honduras or Costa Rica. Although for the life of me, I don't understand why you think somehow denying those people is somehow doing anything other than undermining our common humanity. Is there anybody from other places in the Caribbean and Africa who might fall under DACA? When you start looking at these executive orders, are there any of you with student loans? Because those loans, payment on those loans, principal and interest, have been postponed till at least September by executive order. Are there any of you who, I mean, anybody coming up to me saying that, I don't understand, what do you do for us? If you can't answer any of them four or five questions I just asked, put the straw back in your mouth till you can. Because I swear to God, I don't understand why we think somehow something that we can advance in our interest can also benefit somebody else. This is the core of Martin Luther King's piece. Dr. King is like, you know, we have to advance these black interests and they're going to help other people too. But make no mistake about it. I'm articulating them as black interests. So don't take me as a weak integrationist. In fact, I'm not even, no, this is about human rights. And King, so no, I, I don't think, um, I don't think we, we, we stop to think. And well, let me, let me say this other thing too, because I want to recognize it's very real pain because I feel it. We all feel it. If you've ever been wronged as a child, I'm give an example and people can fit it to their life experiences. You ever been in a thing where, you know, you come in and you were deprived of a piece of cake and you want that cake. You've been thinking about that cake all week. You know, argued for the cake. The cake is because you got shorted on cake the last three uh, times your grandmama cooked the cake. And you in the kitchen now, you ain't gonna miss this cake. You gonna miss this cake. And then your grandmother brings out this pipe, this warm cake. It smell good. The whole house smelling like cake. She cut off a big slice. No, no, not even a big slice. She cut off a little piece and give it to you. Then she cut off a little piece for the kid that you brought in the house just because you know they have you happen to be playing outside. And you looking like you can't even enjoy your piece. And you realize the rest of the cake there, and she's saying, I don't know, we get some money. You're thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give me a big slice, but you can't even enjoy the slice you got right now while you scheming on the rest of the cake because you mad because your friend got a piece of the cake too. Now, meanwhile, your friend is like, Oh man, this is great. Oh, thank you. I'm so you why you give him look, we want the whole cake. We want a kitchen to bake our cake. We want a house to bake our cake in. But if you're going to get caught up because you ain't had nothing and you try and get a little something right now and you mad because somebody else got something who is equally deserving. Oh, yeah, they're equally deserving because they're human. Don't lose your humanity. Don't lose your humanity on the altar of having been wounded. That is a principal result of the trauma we've been in. And that trauma must be addressed. It must be addressed because it happened to us. And we got to figure out a way to get to that conversation. But it can't be by denying other people who have been wounded their humanity. Oh, I keep saying one more thing, but I shouldn't mention this because when we talk, you know what, maybe we talk about 1776 in full uh, next week because this is really something we need to go through. But I want to mention one other thing from here. Before you do, though, before you do, why do you think it's important to 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 talk about the 1776 project? Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Um, this is because, well, number one, when you know, we talked about this last week, 
when you know the uh, the patterns, you can see the rhythms when you study the history. I just, I didn't even pull anything really. I just picked up a couple of things that, this is from 1988. So that's 98, 08, 18, 30, 32 years ago. This is called Thinking and Rethinking U.S. History. Gerald Horn, my friend Gerald Horn, edited this, developed by the Council on Interracial Books for Children. This was a response to the attempts to have curriculum wars from the other side during the 80s. Karen, you remember this, and I couldn't put my hands on it, but between now and next week, I'll find it, because I got like three copies. I just couldn't find them. Remember Arthur Schlesinger Jr.? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the early 90s, Schlesinger wrote a little essay called The Dismantling of America. He didn't attack communism, socialism. He didn't talk about fascism. He, he called it multiculturalism. This is the wars of the, those of you who remember, the wars of the late 80s, early 90s. This is the African-centered curriculum wars. These are all my homies. These are the elders that really brought me in. Um, Asa Hilliard, Asa Grant Hilliard III out of uh, Texas, then, then in Georgia, the Portland Baseline Essays out there in Washington, the um, the New York Commission, Regent Sanford. This is what got Leonard Jeffries and all them. Charcy McIntyre, remember the New York State Regents, and they were going to do the whole thing to rethink the curriculum. This is not new. One of the reasons you read it is to see what war they're continuing. So that's one reason. Another reason is we don't understand that this isn't about history. It's about curriculum. It's about education. You got all these college presidents on here. A sitting justice of the Supreme Court who should not be there is, is, is very closely affiliated with the director's college. These are deeply conservative Christian colleges. They're small, but they got money. There's the Heritage Foundation. Like people were here, they got money. They are weaponizing this concept. And so a report, this is not really a report as much as it is a re-ginning up of the battle cry. Everybody's like, we got through inauguration with no attacks. Boom. Do you know the reason that we know 9-11-2001? Because nobody was looking for 9-11-2001. What you think is over because we got passed last week and they all disappeared? Where'd they go? They're reading this. Or they talking to somebody who did. And they're going to dump money into the... This is what's being taught at the colleges. They talking about universities or hotbeds of radicalism. I ain't see Amy Comey Barrett. She is she, she a commencement speaker, bruh. We know what y'all doing, but no, we don't know what you're doing if we're not paying attention. And the thing that really got me, this is maybe the last thing I'll say for today, is that when we think of our arguments to combat this kind of thing, everything has to be renegotiated. This is why 1619 Project is a threat because the they're gesturing into a direction that makes people think, Wait, are they trying to renegotiate the fundamental terms of this society? In the 1776 commission, and we need to go through this really section by section, one of the things they're very much concerned about is the idea that America has these universal uh, principles that must never be abandoned. And the we they're talking about is a we we never negotiated. And so there's going to have to be a confrontation because we don't want to be confrontational with this. And if we're not confrontational, we're never going to get to the point where we can actually build, because they say at the very, on the first page as well, these facts provide necessary and wise cautions against, watch this, unrealistic hopes and checks against, watch this, pressing partisan claims or utopian agendas 
too hard or too far. Nigga, you can't come in the house. That's too hard or too far. Now, wait, and you can't build no business of your own. That's unrealistic hope. This is designed to keep us on the plantation. We'll pause there because we're going to have to get into a chapter and verse. There's a lot more to this because we really want to go through it because we're going to talk about Dred Scott. We're going to talk about all, all the things that are connected to this. This this is the same curriculum they've been teaching. Mute. Okay. So, so the homework, thank you. Thank you. So the homework is for everyone to read the 1776 project or what is it? Commission. It's 45 pages. Well, the first 20 are really the only ones you need because the rest of it's appendixes. Right. And it's full of beautiful images of Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and I'll, I'll drop a link in the description so that y'all can actually mm. it. and it will go through it um, next week because as we answer those six questions and just go over them just really quickly. Oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the first question is what we call a social structure question. Who are Africans to other people? That's really what this report is trying to do. The governance structure question is what we do every week. Who are we to each other? Sometimes they overlap, but now every of uh, the other four questions, they all feed the governance question. In other words, how we govern ourselves. So the next question is ways of knowing. What ways of understanding and being in the world have we created to navigate our experience? So when Satchel Page says to uh, Buck O'Neill, like, I've been here before. That's a way of knowing. I can't write it down, but I, I've been here before. Ways of knowing. The next piece um, is uh, science and technology. So what 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 ways of using technology, what ways of using science have we used? Them little transistor radios, everybody had. But Black people, in some ways, built a whole culture of identity around listening to those shared devices. I mean, the next category, the fifth of the sixth one, is called uh, movement and memory. As we go through time and space, how do we remember particular moments? So whether it be athletes wearing numbers because their heroes wore them, whether it be Karen and I and a lot of people here thinking about the hammer Henry Aaron and the way it takes us back to our childhood, how do we remember those moments? And then cultural meaning making, the last category we ask ourselves, in any specific moment in time and space, how did we mark that moment in space? So in other words, when we see the young sister Gorman that's a cultural meaning-making moment for us. When we see Michelle Obama coming down flawless, when four years ago she swept her stuff back up in the bun, black people immediately in the governance structure was like, we can read that. Nobody, I, and I'll end with this one. When uh, when Howard oh. Marching Band came down and Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris was coming down and somebody said H-U and she said, you know, the white commentators, social structure, were like, what is that? What is it? Oh yeah, because you don't know. <laughs> you know, there's a whole... You can't even see. We all out here in the street together. What you and then, but then, but then, what they will do is speculate. I even saw a tweet or, or bring in somebody. Yes, with with melanin who can't tell the difference between Mary J. Blige and anyway, I won't go there. How about that? Or, or between between um between uh, well, that's the white people in the Congress between Elijah Cummings and John Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> really that's a, that's a that's classic social structure or i saw one did you see this one I, you might remember um <laughs> wednesday when one somebody said that michelle obama or was it michelle no kamala harris had on the colors of alpha kappa alpha her sorority because y'all know it's some colors 
and it's some women's organizations, but you didn't even, so you just, and, <laughs> anyway, just yeah. stop. all right, you ready to take a question? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. I'm all right, forward. bring this brother yeah, in, he looks like he's driving somewhere, uh, let me welcome in Lee, I don't know where he's from, brother Lee. Uh, he's not responding, and we, can we hear you? Yes, hi Lee. Hey, how you doing, Miss Hunter? How you doing, uh, Dr. Carr? Oh, good, good to see you, brother. Uh, I'm doing fine. Yeah, I live in California, but I'm a truck driver, so I done pulled over on side of the road for like the last hour and a half. So I can. So, so hey, I man, be safe out thing. there, bro. You you go you go from coast to coast. I mean, you had a region. How you work? I go coast to right now. I just run the five. I go from uh, Los Angeles up to Seattle and back. But next week, I'm actually doing something different to enhance. You know. Um, okay. Switch up a little bit and be going coming from Chicago to LA. Woo! Hey man, be be safe out there. Look, that, that's a fantasy of a lot of us to say we want to be truck drivers. But CC, you do it for real, you be like, yeah, y'all ain't about that life. Y'all don't. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a whole life. It's a whole change on the lifestyle. That's for sure. Ah, oh, what's going? What's going on, bro? I don't want to take up too much time, sir. Uh, I got a I got a question. My question, um, of course, I've been listening to Miss Hunter for like since she's I say 2015, and I didn't want to ask the question because I felt my question was going to be off, but the Nothing powers thing. of the ancestors lined it up. And yes. we've been talking about, Professor Hunter been talking about re-looking at everything different. Look at it, we got to re-examine everything. Yes. And as an ex-youth pastor, my thing is the spirituality part of it. Because as we go back and redo this, I know the power that the black church used to have. Mm. I want, I believe in my own opinion that we need to re harvest that power. But my thing is when you start looking at the Bible and the way it's been a, I want to say it's been the buckle of white supremacy holding the belt together. Woo. When you start looking at it, they made a lot of things seem taboo as far as like voodoo and stuff yeah. like that. Spiritual stuff. Even though when you go look, I asked my wife, is there voodoo in the Bible? She was like, no. I said, but why did they spread blood on the doorstep, on the on the top of the door? Come on, brother. And I Come said, on, and this other parts when even when Saul, uh, Saul called up, he he called Samuel. And even before that, when they sacrificed to make sacrifice the animals to get the clothing, God had Come to on, sacrifice. Bobby. Yes, sir. And Legion, my my, my 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 brother Jeremiah Wright always talks about Legion. Remember when Christ had to cast them demons? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> my my question is, how can we? Uh, Grow to that, bring people, bro, take that to the people and say, hey, man, this stuff we got to look at, we may have been all been taught wrong. And mm. you know how black people is with their Jesus? And, and I'm not saying Jesus, I'm just saying, no. there's a lot of things spiritually that we've been mistaught, misled, like R.D. Wood said, miseducation of Negro. Uh, we had a whole miseducation of spirituality. Yes. Because when you go in a black church, don't nobody call on the blood like we do. Nobody. I mean, just look at the white lady. She didn't say the, the angels from Europe. She said nope. the angels from two distinct places, Africa and Australia. Yes. Originally and the original. Come on, brother. So my thing is, is there a way that we can approach the older and the new to try to re-harness their power while teaching them like, hey, man, that Bible right there, yeah, it's good. Mm. But there's a lot of misconception there that we got to, and I, you know, because people run away from it real quick. Let me ask you right quickly. Well, Where you know, from? Uh, from Crestville, Missouri, uh, right off the 55, the original home of Cedric the Entertainer. Come on, brother. Yes, but, sir. You know, I asked you Lewis, about though. Missouri. I'm the one to ask you the question about Missouri. Yes, yes. And I started reading the book, and oh my God, that book got me right now. Oh, that, that book and heart, John? 
I would have got it the very next day. I, yeah, I ordered man. it that night. That's crazy, right? Man. I, I, I mean, see, they see? taught us a lot of that stuff, but oh my God, a lot of stuff they left out. They left out, no doubt, no doubt. See, this is the genius of, of this thing that, that, that Professor Hunter has created, that Karen has created. We get, this, these are the conversations we need to be having, man, because we you've lived that life. So when you read a book like that, it's going to hit you much differently. You'll be able to teach much differently than I could not have it come through and come up in that space. Let me ask you as well, what denomination did you uh, work in, work out of? Baptist okay, well, I grew up I grew up Baptist, and then when I actually joined the church to start ministry, it was non-denomination. But my sisters uh, was married to a bishop. I mean, uh, the hijab, the clothes all the way down to the ankles, uh, and they Christian. They apostolic and uh, yeah. get tongues and all that. Yeah. And, and we need, you know, and I know there's some things I didn't heard them saying. I'm like, well, I just can't accept it, even though I didn't preach. I can't condemn a, a I can't, I can't condemn my daughter to hell because she didn't married her, her wife. Yes. And, and, yeah. and I, I just can't accept that. Well, you know what? Th there it is. I think, Lee, what you're doing oh, right now is Wait, let, can, can I just oh, jump into no, I'm sorry, Doc. No, and, and Lee, thank you. Thank you. I know you're in your truck, um, and I want to just thank you for pulling over to the side of the road and being safe. Um, and thank you for being a part of this family. You know, you're right about the ancestors. It's so weird. In that documentary, FBI, um, MLK FBI, Andrew Young says that Martin Luther King said, we are insane. We are insane for with no guns, no no power, no money that we're out here fighting this. But the galvanizing force was the church. Yep. And I asked this question of a bunch of friends of mine, back then in the 50s and 60s and 40s, even before that, you talk about Nat Turner, you talk about Denmark Vesey, the, the church was not about God as much as it was about delivering messages and organizing. And we don't have that anymore no. for a lot of reasons, pr primarily because our pastors have been compromised. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it out loud. Yeah, because they forgot. They didn't remember what their role was. They did not so remember. passing the plate and so much building funds and jets and things that they forgot that for Black people, that church, and you've mm. talked about it, and then last week you said something that was nasty. You okay. said there's no no record of there ever have been any Hebrews in Egypt in that whole... And I was like, so people were like, oh, you got to, I was like, y'all ain't ready for that conversation. Not ready for it. It will dismantle everything that you were taught to believe. Like, was it nearly fuller? Oh, wow. Now, you right. understand this, everything else will confuse you. That's right. We can't have that conversation because so many of us are indoctrinated into this is the truth. Right. What are you talking about? That's the that's the slavery. That's the bondage that they're counting on. That when Nat Turner read them same words, it, it landed Ooh. differently for him. And he was like, I don't Oh, that! Oh, I'm gonna follow this book that you gave me. Yes, but they sent them out into the plantation to indoctrinate black people into a way of thinking about God and Jesus to make their bondage comfortable and palpable for them. Right? That's right. This conversation has to be had. I don't know if we are ready to have it. And let me—I love the Lord. I know you love the Lord. You heard my Brother, cry and, I, and answered every, and pitied every moan. <laughs> As long as I will, you hasten to his. Come on now, we can preach him on in now. <laughs> but how, Karen? I think, and and Lee started bringing it together. What we do is very different than how we frame it. So, I'll never forget. Well, that's a story for another. Day one of my students, Michelle, she worked for years in Chicago with Reverend Jackson, Jesse Jackson, Operation Push. I never forget Michelle 
devout Christian, evangelical zeal. Good young sister. This I was probably I had been at Howard probably about five or six years. We were in my black aesthetics class. That's when my classes were small enough to fit in a, a, a regular classroom. Now, you know, my lowest class had 100 students. Now you see you may have 300. But uh, but in this room, we were all sitting in a circle. It's about 40 of us. We were reading together a book by Clyde Taylor, Bible Clyde Taylor, called The Mask of Art. Some of you all may know that book. It's, it's really on whiteness and the 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 uh somebody just texted me the disuniting of america right that was that was arthur schlesinger's book thank you um the disuniting of america and the real i I, i'm I'm coming back to the story but i should make this point as well this 1776 project you can get for free in pdf when arthur schlesinger wrote his attack on the african-centered movement he had pictures in there of leonard jeffries Milana Karinga, he didn't, he naming the people, Malefia Asante, he's, we, in other words, it was a hit piece on the African-centered movement. He didn't even know the real G's underneath them. Asa Hilliard, he mentions, but he didn't mention Jacob Carruthers in them because he didn't know. This is the man who's considered Kennedy's historian. The great, his father was a historian. So people talking about the 1776 project, they don't have any historians. Arthur Schlesinger was a historian, all y'all respected, a liberal historian back, anyway. The first, the book was eventually published for purchase in bookstores you could get it but the first version of the book which is why i got a root around here i know i got i usually keep a couple of copies i know i didn't put everything in storage the first versions of the book were printed in hardcover with a slip jacket a little slim volume published and distributed by a, uh by federal express out of memphis they were given away free so you gotta understand intellectual warfare as it relates to curriculum wars People you think your friend, not your friend. But anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Back to the thing now. So, Michelle, we in the room reading The Mask of Art. The, the thesis, one of Clyde Taylor's thesis, brilliant brother, uh, graduated from Howard University. Um, actually went to school with Eleanor Trailer and Tony Morrison. They all taught freshman comp when they were in graduate school at, at Howard or beyond. Clyde Taylor ends up at NYU, film historian. I mean, just a brilliant brother. One of the most powerful people I, I can say I've ever encountered. There's a thinker. You know, cultural worker. Clyde Taylor's book, The Mask of Art, is really about how whiteness operates in the field of violence that he might refer to as the art culture complex. It's the invisibility of whiteness that gives it its power. So when we say, for example, in our country, who is our? You never even thought about our. Our is where whiteness hides. So you can't fight your way into that without you always being a junior partner. That's why I say, you know, 1619 Project is a is a is a powerful, compelling critique and posing an alternate narrative but when you started with our you've already erased so much of the governance structure that i don't see how you recover so when they say oh henry aaron is a very powerful reminder of how our nation you don't even know henry aaron in order for it to be our nation you would have to know him and he don't want you to know him because it ain't safe anyway so we're in the circle reading this book which is deconstructing the aesthetics. It's really a book on aesthetics. In fact, the class is called Black Aesthetics, Africana Aesthetics, as I renamed it when I came to Howard. We started, we're reading the book, and we get to this notion of spirituality and spiritual systems. And we're all in a circle, about 40 of us. We packed in now. We're on the second floor of a Lane Lock Hall. Those of you know the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University. We're in there reading, reading, and we start talking about how Blackness retains this African cultural foundation, even as we adapt to whatever culture we absorb. And some kind of way we got on the conversation about spirituality. And, and we started talking about 
in in meaning making practices. It might fit in the, in those six categories under ways of knowing. In the ways of knowing category, for example, the idea that there are spiritual forces beyond the material, what we can see, touch, feel, taste, smell, and how those things you find suffusing in human cultures, including African cultures. And there are many ways in African culture where we find ourselves acknowledging those spiritual forces. And a lot of it has to do with the power of speech. So we're talking about the Egyptian concept of Medu, uh, Nomo, which you see written about everybody from Paul Carter Harrison through who's in theater um, that, you know, there's a guy is a German guy who wrote a book called Muntu, which, you know, it's kind of, you know, anyway, try to use black sources. Anyway, the power of the word, the power of speech. So Michelle is like, that's right. Cause when that preacher start going, start humming, instead she she all are like five one. She rocking in the chair. Now we all we all been in this conversation. It's been heavy. You can almost feel the energy. And she said, and then he gets to the end, and he said, I'm gonna cover you in the blood of Jesus. And she said, gee, and all of us stood up. Negro started running out the door. <laughs> now in that moment, is that Christian? Yes. Is that African? Yes as Future would say, the rapper, at the same damn time. See, the problem we have often is a lot of things we interpret as Christian, we brought on those boats with us. When I was in Salvador Bahia, this is in 2007, Dana King and the folks at the School of Philadelphia, after we had done the curriculum, we went to Salvador Bahia to have conversations with Afro-Brazilian school teachers about how we compare notes, share, make our curriculums better. We're talking... Uh, maybe like 400 teachers and students in this place in Salvador Bahia. We having this conference, this multi-day conference. And I never forget during one of the breaks, we're out in the neighborhood looking around. So I'm looking at these vendors because, you know, obviously they think all the tourism. And there's this older black man sitting there, Brazilian. So I'm sure given the many variations. In fact, Cedric would know about this. who We talked to months ago. I saw this maybe about four foot high statue of Jesus, wooden statue. And he had a double-bladed axe in his hand. So I asked the old man, I said, oh, Jesus. He said, see. I said, ah, Shango. He said, see. <laughs> okay, is this a Christian or Yoruba figure? The answer is yes. In other words, so we, I think we have to stop thinking about Christianity as a European concept, and this is what Jeremiah Wright is probably the most brilliant single person thinking through. Y'all go look up Jeremiah Wright's talks on this. He's got a thousand of them on YouTube. Mm. Think of it as an extension of African cultures. We just adapted our culture to the circumstances we found ourselves in. Because when you cover some, ain't nobody covering nobody with the blood of Jesus like black people. And then white people start overhearing it. And that's when their preachers start taking off. Jimmy Swigert and I, oh, in the blood of Jesus. Y'all wasn't talking like that in England. You listening outside the circle on the plantation. And then you took that into everything. So it's very important that we don't give up who we are or condemn folk who we think, oh, you ain't. With. Do you see how they're entering and exiting that space? That's very African. I think that's the bridge we build to begin the conversation. But there are so many of us who are white-facing uh <laughs> it's almost like you know uh backwash you know they've stolen <laughs> they've stolen from us and then we're drinking it from oh. the from the stolen i mean it's you know brother lee is saying something we have had um episode 25 26 24 25 and 26 if you go back to in class mm -hmm. episodes no i'm sorry 25 yep 24 25 and 26 we talk about god there if you want to start mm -hmm. going down that rabbit hole we've had we've had um 
you know, now this is our 47th uh, episode, 24, 25, and 26. You talk about the African connection. Remember the book that cost like a thousand dollars with the underworld. I mean, it was, those are some amazing conversations that will start to extricate ourselves from this white facing Christianity, which is backwash actually yes. stolen from us and given Ooh. back to us. And now we're trying and it doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right. But it's important that we come to this because there's so many of us who give our life hard earned money, our time and energy. We are so rigid in the, in the following of the letter of the law, which Jesus came back to say, mm, so I'm not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. You brood of vipers. Come on now. You know, I'm like, we, we, we need to have that conversation. No. Maybe we need to bring your brother in on this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And you know what? Maybe we could yeah, we get Jeff in on for sure. We we, uh, we might be able to tease Jeremiah right. Jim, oh, if you can do that, Dr. Carr. Yeah, I'll put you in contact with Let's do that. All right. Because I grew up Christian. You grew, We grew up in the Christian church. And I don't... Um, I can go to the church, the mosque, the synagogue, uh, the Ile, you know, I mean, go to the Akong. I mean, if they're doing Yoruba and see, but I think there is a political bridge that is the bridge too far. And that's the difference. This 1776 project, it says America is the first republic that really tries to do. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Haiti. See, the problem with Haiti is, first of all, there are no modern countries in the way we think about them prior to this set of colonialism. That's the first mistake of anybody reading this stuff, thinking countries like they, when they get to slavery, they say slavery has existed throughout human history. Stop with that bullshit. That's some bullshit. What does it mean in different places? What y'all did? This is some original. That's on you. But anyway, Kaka de Vaca. Kaka de Vaca. Say again. Kaka de Vaca. Kaka de Vaca. No question. That's that you're, right. you're right. I should be saying, yes, yeah, my man Roach Brown were here. Yeah, yeah. That's shiggity. You know, you know, even say, right. But the, um, the thing and that's about okay because you quote future, so I mean, okay, well, no, I just yeah, I ain't, I ain't everything that deep in the lexicon is at your disposal. No, 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 I, I ain't that deep. In fact, 1776 project they talk about the second Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers, the Federalist Papers were written to advocate for the passage of the adoption of the Constitution. So they quote Federalist number two on the question of equality. And I'm thinking to myself, what about Federalist 55? where Hamilton and them are arguing that black people are property and black people are people. And of course the phrase is coming from future at the same damn time. In other words, don't think about these. These are not binaries. They made us into property and people and Sean Winlitz and them talking about no property and man and all this BS. Anyway, we can come to that another time. But the, the, the whole question of Christianity is something we should probably explore. So, yeah. All right. Well, there was something else. I was something else we were talking about. I wanted to make that point but i forgot anyway it'll come back to me That's next really... week too we always we'll be back that's true, that's true. we in the fifty thousand. so you know your class is a thousand people uh you get fifty thousand on the saturday no i think about look you know the difference between our students that we teach normally in the classroom and this and somebody had to remind me of this because we're not going back to the way it was everybody here with us we're all here together we're here because we want to be and i'm not mm-hmm. saying the students don't want to be in class but what we found in the education system, and you know this, you know, you know, people are going to school because they want a good job, they want a good life, and they want to learn too, and that'll be cool. But the first thing they want is <laughs> people doing this now because they want to. And I'm just so excited about it. Yeah, me too. And I love everybody. Thumbs up, y'all. Uh yes. appreciate you. Uh if you want to ask a question next week, hit me in the DMs on Twitter at Karen Hunter. 
Um, also, you can follow Dr. Gray Carr at Africana Carr Africana on the Twitter. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, Karen. Let me, let me Thursday. That's what it was. I was remembering Haiti. The reason Haiti can't be, they can't digest Haiti is because in terms of ways of knowing, Vodun, which is a blend of Fon and Dahomey and Yoruba and the Catholic Church, it, it cannot be reconciled politically with the white agenda. It's too much. So that's why Haiti has to continually be punished in the Western imagination. It's too African. <laughs> they, they, so, and, and it ain't too African because of the color of the people. It's the culture. And at the center of the culture is the spirituality. That's why when Martin Luther King breaks out of Christianity and says Jesus wasn't about materialism, oh, this guy got to go. You about to mess our money up. It's the spiritual center of what King is doing that would never allow him to get in. A, I'm not an electoral. He said, I'm a minister. I'm the son of a minister. I'm the grandson. Oh, this guy got to go. Because what he's speaking out of, we don't have any control over that. That's that's the point I was trying to be. And so our, our goal has to be to not have them control us that's with right. the Bible. That's right. Whoop. That's right. Okay. I'll see you next week. I appreciate you. I love, love you. you. Yes. Love everybody else. Hey, everyone have a great weekend. Uh, we'll see y'all next Saturday. See y'all.